by Jimmy here. Well, what did you expect for our 50th official pitch? We're covering a Roger Moore, James Bond film, and this is an epic pod. By some distance, the most epic we've ever crafted. We hope you enjoy it. Um, one small note, when Sheppy gets into his pitch, there's a fantastic scene that invokes uh, Christopher Nolan's insomnia, but Sheppy accidentally refers to Inception. We just wanted to make that little clarification for you, but otherwise, hope you enjoy. Mr. Bond, it's good to see you again. because we should get the ball rolling yeah. because this is going to be a chunker, a chunker and a bloater old son, just like those rectangular Roger Moore films. They fill up an entire Sunday afternoon. They're like Lawrence of Arabia. They're rectangular muscular films. They're not slipstream. My God, they're not slipstream. Spent eight hours watching Octopussy. Um, so, so I love all of that um, very much. With that in mind, um, do you want to actually jump into the introduction also? Of course. <laughs> I'm looking forward very much to a rectangular muscular podcast with you. Uh, <laughs> well, are we all? Welcome to Shoulders of Giants. I'm Jimmy. Hello, I'm Sheppy. And unprompted, unscripted, <laughs> untethered, my, we my are God. the What If podcast for uh, movie sequels and prequels, TV show spin-offs, taking existing ip you always love it when i say that and making it our own ip and doing we we, we are slightly scripted it must be said i mean this bit isn't he said reading off the teleprompter but it's not when you say unscripted i have to sort of jump in and say well no i mean this isn't coming off the top of my head i'm not rain man you would think by now i'd have this neural pathway down pat given this is effectively formally the 50th episode episode i agree but don't call me pat you have a nasty habit of surviving well you know what they say about the fittest <laughs> um yes Shippy, yes and i think let's let's get some uh orders of business out the way then old bean old soccer what what right. do we start with today is a sort of thing Ooh, well before. okay so so you're absolutely right about this whole Shoulders of Giants lark. I mean, I've looked into it. You're not wrong. And with that in mind, today we're doing one that you set, which is surprising to everyone who would know me, because it's the sort of thing you would assume that I would set, but it never even occurred to me, Jimmy. And that's a James Bond film set within the Roger Moore era, uh, a new Roger Moore James Bond film, which is bloody, well, for our 50th, of course, episode, let's not forget. But James, I need you. So does England. Um, so that's that's a, a huge, lovely, wonderful, beautiful challenge to wallow in. And that I did, Jimmy, wallow a lot. Oh, come, come, Mr Bond, you disappoint me. You get as much fulfilment out of killing as I do, so why don't you admit it? I admit killing you would be a pleasure. Was this something you had been planning for a, a, a while, or did this come to you, this, this concept? 
not for a while. I think it just needed to be a bit special for for this particular pitch. You know, I just for, for the milestone at least number on the episode. I think we've established we've probably done over a hundred pitches already, just with side hustles, etc. But um... now, nose, a nose, not a banana cue. I'm sorry. The, you know. It, it's a little bit of a milestone episode. I thought, yeah, and and it probably two weeks out, two weeks out from the pod ships. I thought, yeah, come and, on, let's do. Right. We've said it before. It's probably worth saying this is the fiftieth. We've been pretty much hitting the gas the whole time we've been doing this wonderful, wonderful pod. But after this, we're just going to decelerate. Uh, you know, let let us catch our breath and chill for a minute, and we're going to continue doing this, uh, but sort of in the specials format. After this season five has just come to an end. So there you go. And yes, Jimmy, yes, I say. I'm looking for Dr. Goodhead. You just found her. A woman. Your powers of observation do you credit, Mr. Bond. Let me say, the biggest surprise to me when you said this was I never even for a second considered doing an elaborate Bond in like the style of Octopussy, which remains an untouchable transcendent film that exists for me beyond Bond and beyond film and beyond all that is known. Octopussy for me, Jimmy, as you know, is a very special entity. Um, but I can also step away from this and see it within the Bond canon. And I love the bigness and the craziness. And of course, Moonraker being the biggest and craziest of all of them, it's like, yeah, the temptation would be like to go in that direction. Uh, but I didn't. And I, and I went in a different direction and I decided to do it immediately, which is interesting. But... With that in mind, I kind of siphoned off the pressure of not doing that sort of Roger Moore Bond film by sort of releasing that into, into, a, into basically an idea that I think I've said before on this very pod. And it's a, it's a concept that I've really, really liked since, I'm going to say since university, I, I, I like the idea of it. Um, so it, this is kind of a never say never again sort of situation. It's uh, So just for the record, after Connery came back and did Diamonds Are Forever, he then said that was definitely the last one. And then, like 10 years later, he signed on to do the Thunderball remake for the uh, non-official, non-Broccoli people, the Kevin McClory's. And he did it for the cash, and he did it to fuck off Broccoli. He never paid him very much. And when he came back the second time, his wife, Connery's wife, suggested famously that the title for this new Bond film be called Never Say Never Again. So with all of that in mind, and by the way, it came out in 83, the same year as Octopussy, so, you know, Titans. Uh, and Octopussy won at the box office, but it was close, and they didn't come out the same summer because it took ages to edit the, uh, Never Say Never Again, so it was delayed till Christmas. So there you go. And they both made a lot of money, uh, but Octopussy won. So with all of that in mind, I thought, what if Roger Moore did the same thing? And he did View to a Kill in 85, and then at a certain point, late down the road, he comes back and does a remake. And like Connery, who remade Thunderball for this big legal stuff, which people know about, um, Thunderball's the fourth Connery, and so the fourth Moore is Moonraker. So Moore comes back for a, a big budget, independent away from Broccoli, um, Moonraker remake. And it's in 1999, and it's called I Never Said Never in the First Place. And it's, um, it's directed by someone crazy, not like Michael Bay, but someone ridiculous. Like, you know, I mean, it's ridiculous that Irving Kirshner did Never Say Never Again. 
And Drax, this time, isn't French. He's Italian, and it's Roberto Benigni. And this is like, you know, just a few years after Life is Beautiful, and so he's a studio darling at that point. And it makes sense after the Oscar win to do, like, a big blockbuster stuff. So he's like, yes! And can you, if you imagine Klaus Thingy Thingy, the guy who plays Largo and Never Seen Ever Again, he's a mad Russian in it, whereas the Largo in Thunderball is, is like ice-cold uh, Italian. Where, and, and Klaus Thingy Thingy and Never Seen Ever Again plays Largo as like this crazy, it's a great performance. He's nuts. And so Benini being in, uh, being in this one, he would give that kind of manic energy, but also he's a good actor, so play it really dark. And that's the other thing. This film, it's made outside of the broccolis and all of that. So it actually goes really hardcore. They swear and they fuck and it's really violent. Um, so Drax is really hardcore. And in this version of Drax, he's actually a movie studio owner in Hollywood who makes disaster pictures and blockbusters. And his plan is to drill to the center of the earth and where he establishes his base. So instead of Moonraker like going to space, they go in. And he creates his own ultimate disaster picture. To, and his plan is to erupt the world's volcanoes, um, covering everything with lava and shit, but also um, was, you know, doing out this noxious, horrible, poisonous gas, which is going to kill you know, the population of the Earth through like, cracks that will appear everywhere. He's going to fracture the surfaces and the continental plates. He's going to fuck everything. He's going to live with his colony and his like, sex bunnies down there for like, you know, a generation. Then they're going to pop up and repopulate, and it's the same basic plan as the original Drax. Um, there's also a henchwoman, a sexy, evil French lady, and that's because of Fatima Blush in Never Seen Ever Again, who's wonderful, who's also in Condor Man. She's, uh, she's, so the equivalent here is an evil, uh, sexy French lady, and she actually, in the story, she's the equivalent of the woman who in Moonraker gets eaten by the dogs. But here, this version, she's a baddie, and this is sort of her revenge at the universe, as it were. Uh, and she controls a, a massive, large killer dog. Maybe it's a Doberman, but maybe it's like some weird mutant dog because Drax is into weird mutant shit because he's making this crazy virus. So it's like a weird Hulk dog using like an... Ex oh, and she's got like, you know, these. I've always thought this, since having a dog of my own, the extending uh, lead or leash which goes out and it's actually, I've cut my finger so many times because it's not a rope. It's like really thin and you know, plastic, you know, you know what I mean? On the extender lead, which goes, goes quite long. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so this girl's got one of those. And so she makes it go long and you know, slack and the dog like runs a lap around some dude. And then, so then the, the lead goes like round by, you know, behind his knees. And then she pushes the button to make the, the lead go tight and it slices his legs off from the back from behind the knees. And, you know, and because this is hardcore, you see it, it goes down and then the dog runs around. So it goes around his neck and he's like, Ugh! and then she pushes it again and his head pops off and shit <laughs> like that. So it's like a take on the Dobermans from, from Moonraker. Um, and that's nice. Bond makes uh, the dog chase him, by the way, during his bit. He, you know, she's doing it to him. And he makes it the dog run around the woman many, many times. And then the button is pressed and she's all like, you know, wrapped up like a Christmas present. And you just see her eye looking frantic. And then it's like, zip, and she's sliced and diced like a Chinese lantern. And she falls down in lots of bits. Um, and there's also, instead of, um, you know, Chang, the Chinese henchman from Moonraker, instead it's an old man. And it's the old man who um, from Home Alone who 
uh, you know, the, the one who Kevin's scared of, but then he helps him get back. It's him looking exactly the same. And his granddaughter, it's like a Winton Mr. Kid double act, but it's grandfather and granddaughter, and she's like about 14. Kind of a, um, a, a young Jodie Foster in like, you know, body swap comedies in the 70s, that sort of look. Uh, and they're like assassins, of course. And there's like their wheel of death is their thing. And there's like a Zorb type of beach ball of death. And you, you get chucked inside and rolled down a massive hill and then off a cliff. And sometimes they throw like a hand grenade in there. So it's bouncing around inside with you and then you fly off a cliff and blow up. And Bond goes in there and he grabs someone else and they have a fight. And then, you know, Bond gets out and the guy flies off and blows up. So that's nice. Um, there's like a set piece because of the Hollywood angle with uh, aliens and spaceships and Romans and sailors and all manner of that sort of stuff. Oh, and at one point, Bond gets a tranquilizer or a poison dart in his neck. And he pulls it out, but he's really fucked. And he's all mega woozy and he has to fight like hordes of baddies with fists and guns. And like he has to get out of the building before it blows up. But he's all, you know, having to fuck up loads of people when he's fucked. And he fights, uh, Bond fights in a drunken master sort of style. Um, <laughs> and Bond, um, Goodhead is, <laughs> no, I thought it might be funny. This is 1999. I didn't say that. Because just like we're going up against uh, Octopussy, this film goes up against uh, The World Is Not Enough. So it's released in 1999. That's around the time uh, more, I think, he was maybe that or a few years after him doing the Spice World movie, if you want to kind of like a, a comparison, see what he looked like. It's him and maybe like a 20-year-old Reese Witherspoon is Dr. Goodhead, and it's beyond badly judged, like so badly judged. Um, and and so the climax is like they're in, inside the Earth's core and all of that. And Drax is releasing his seed pods up to the surface of Doom. And it's the same as Moonraker and they're chasing them, but it's underground. And in one of like Max's, uh, Drax's mega diggers, and it's like, you know, Benny's massive drill from Total Recall. Hey, Quay! But it's like slightly smaller on chrome and all streamlined. And it's like that. It's like a meow through the Earth's crust. Um, and so Drax is going to do all of this shit. Uh, Bond must grab a, a mini tunneler and race after the last of the pod and it's all that steady type stuff and he gets all the pods apart from the last one and he sends all of them into the uh, Earth's molten crust and they get fucked up and there's a final fight with Drax inside the last pod carrying the shit and Bond escapes because Goodhead races up in her own pod and it's a bit of a world is not enough actually because it's like that underground bit and he jumps from one to the other and then she decelerates and goes back up to the surface and Drax is sealed inside his pod just as it ruptures, exposing him to his own gas and his skin starts to bubble like, like the rock, but it's even worse and his eyes pop. And again, it's really horrible and hardcore and it goes on and on and on. And, but he's watching Bond's pod fly up and away to safety as his rockets down into the Earth's molten core to be consumed. And Bond and Goodhead then have sex and quote-unquote erupt up onto the White House lawn where they're surrounded by agents, but they fuck anyway. And so that's, I never said never in the first place. Uh, there you go. I just wanted that to get that off my chest. Is amazing, Sheppy. So that, that's bloody amazing. And let me just say, to the voice of doubt for our wonderful, beautiful listeners, that is but a palate cleanser. That is not Sheppy's pitch today. That's a palate cleanser. That's a My pre-cred is longer than that. <laughs> My pre-cred is probably three times longer than that. <laughs>
Well, I can't bloody wait for any of that. So let me just try and sort of tame this untamable beast of an yes. agenda, Sheppy. So we've that 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 is off the chest, and that is exciting. And I hope it does double the business. The world is not enough. And then the <laughs> I um, think it will. <laughs> and then, how can it not? How could it not? And I feel like maybe what we do next is just for the purists, the SOG purists, we um, we should just do a quick check-in with Fools and Horses. I have one team right. to go to quickly talk to you about. Then I'd love to know um, what you think about this chap called Roger Moore and if you really make it as 007 after, you know, <laughs> forever. And then um, and then maybe I, I'll, 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 I'll spin into a cheeky pitch before the... Well, that's wonderful. The, the biggie. Well, tell me, um, tell me about your thing, old son. What was the TV show you mentioned? Oh, this thing called Jury Duty, Sheppy, which has taken the Yanks by storm. <laughs> on, uh, it's on Amazon Prime, and it's only seven eps or eight eps or something. But it, the the premise is basically you've got a kid who has applied for Jury Duty for a reality TV show on Jury Duty, and. And but then the, the twist is that he's the only one who really thinks he's on jury duty and everybody else around him is an actor. And so they managed to control the environment, Truman start show style, and they create this experience uh for him. And it's really quite special, actually. And it's it's just a little social experiment that you might not be able to get away with again, because now people will be suspicious that that's happening. And uh, right. and it's really nice. Wow. And, and I should have got this in advance, but do you remember the gentleman who's in X Men and Westworld? Um, Luke, not Luke. Um, oh, bloody Jimmy! Which X Men? Uh, the original. He plays um, uh, Cyclops. James Marston. Yes, Liz and... Lemon's boyfriend. <laughs> wow! <laughs> uh, yes, he's in it. Played himself, which is really nice, and uh, like, no. but, but really playing it up just yeah. to the line, and, um, and it's. It, all hidden cameras and stuff, and I, I fully, fully recommend it. Yeah, it's nice. And the title is Jury Duty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's nice. Oh, I love it. I love it. There you go. Well, yeah, very quickly, because uh, it wouldn't be a, an episode, apparently, of Shoulders and Giants if you didn't get an Only Fools and Horses update. So I finished Season 7, uh, Jimmy, and I'll say, so these, like Season 6, they're like 15 minutes apart. They're all fairly epic. They spend some time on the side characters so everyone gets a chance to breathe. Some of the episodes were good, 50% soap, um, and there's a, there's a strong soapy element in this season, but it just about works because there are some really strong episodes. And the one with, uh, where Slater, Jim Broadbent, comes back, and it's the first time we've seen him since the amazing Amsterdam Diamond episode, and it's really good. And then the double twist, the amazing twist, spoiler, he turns out to be Raquel's ex-husband. And I wonder when John Sullivan came up with that, you know, when he obviously was going to bring back Slater and he started mentioning it, you know, oh, he, he was going to bring back Raquel's husband because he, he kept mentioning that. And then they started to merge. And I wonder if that was the plan from the beginning or if at one glorious moment, he had that thunderbolt. He's like, what the fuck? What if Raquel's ex-husband is Slater and then just sends everyone home for an early lunch? Um, either way, it's amazing and it's great, and it's—I think it's the last time Slate is ever in it, and it's—it's it's good. He's only in like maybe three or four, so relatively little, but very, very little, few, I should say, but but very, very effective, probably for the best, like Flash Art in a way. Um, so brilliant. Um, 
The other thing I wanted to say is it had the brilliant I'm going down on Nag's head, as you described. So that was nice to see. Everyone's good. I like Raquel, despite my previous comments. Um, and I also, Jimmy, saw the one I was really looking forward to, which is Miami Twice, uh, which and it's it's not as good as the Diamond one. That remains the best sort of film, as it were, of only four horses. But this is really good and really fun. Um, and actually, a joke that I always liked is now even funnier to me. It, and, uh, and I'm not, oh God, I'll just say it's Boise and he's taking photos in the Everglades. And he's like, right, time for photos. It's a click and it's like a swan and click. It's an alligator and click. It's a heron or whatever. And then click, it's Dell. And then click, it's another you know, beautiful butterfly. And that's always funny. Then he's like, wait a minute. It's like a double take of a camera joke and it works. But the, what's really funny is just there with Marlene. He's like, right, photos, click, click, click. And he gets these amazing photos each time, um, which is which is fun. And I never sort of thought about that the first time I watched it <laughs> 25 years ago. But that's nice. It was really good. Hot Town, Summer in the City uh, remains a masterpiece. Genius. Not the only time it ever doesn't use the only horse and horses theme. But they did a Chaz and Dave song. In fact, Chaz and Dave did a song for them. Look out, Rodney. That sort of thing for a previous Christmas episode. So there you go. Miami twice, two thumbs up. I like it very much, and it remains uh, one that I'm very fond of. And I I saw it when it was first on, and I think I've seen it once since then, but again, probably like 20 years ago. So there you go. Hooray. And that's where I am now. So I finished the, the series, and now it's like shoulders of giants. We're now just into the specials. So there you go. Well... I mean, there's no higher compliment, Sheps, than I quite fancy watching Miami twice again on the back of that. Yeah. There you go. And I really don't like that one. So that's 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 good fun. That's exciting. Yeah. Well, let me just say as well, then, from Jim Broadbent to David Jason in the Everglades to Roger Moore, three national treasures, treasures, Sheppy, get my words out this morning at some point, three national treasures. And what does the latter mean to you? What does Mr. Moore mean to Sheppy? Well, it's a funny thing with Roger Moore because I grew up in the 80s and I remember watching Roger Moore and apparently I was there for Fear Eyes Only and I was apparently there for Octopussy in 83, but I don't remember that, so I don't know if it counts. But I also but I remember seeing Condorman the same week as Fear Eyes Only, same, like days apart. So I, so I, I, I certainly existed. I remember. Anyway, but I, I like you, I think, for me, the first one I was aware of watching in the cinema was View to a Kill. But by that point, I'd watched all of them in, in the Conneries. I'd watched all of them a, a, a lot. So it's all mixed in with that, of course. But then there is something also separate about Roger Moore, for me, that really sort of blossomed, as it were, as I came around, as it were, and was wonderful in terms of just seeing Moore as a separate entity. And I'd, I'd watched The Saint throughout my teenage years and, and The Persuaders, and I liked them both. But then at a certain point, it was like, fucking hell, I love Roger Moore. And I really got into The Saints, and I really got into The Persuaders. Interestingly, I never watched his turn as Ivanhoe, or I think Bert Maverick, Brett Maverick's like cousin from England, who comes over and takes over when Jim Garner wants to have time off, for like season six or something. <laughs> so Moore is the main part of Maverick. And you would think I would want to see that. So anyway... But more for me is really The Saint and then Brett Sinclair and then, of course, Bond. And then the films he made within the 70s were very interesting. The ones he made between Bonds, uh, I have a huge affection for all of them. And they're all in some ways terrible and they're all brilliant in other ways. And it's pure more. And sometimes he's grizzled and sometimes he's fey. 
Sometimes in Escape from Athena, he's like a kind of a likable, sympathetic Nazi. Very strange. Very strange. Um, he wants to like have sex with, I think it's Raquel Welsh, and she says no. And he says, ah, I'm not going to rape you. I can't do it if you're going to be like this. And he goes off in a sulk. It's like, fucking hell. Weird film. David Niven, Gregory Peck. Anyway, all of that's amazing. So uh, in a film called The Man Who Haunted Himself, uh, which is amazing. And if anyone wants to track that down, and I've got it on DVD, so I'll lend it to you if you like. It's um, it's so good. It's trippy. It's clever. It's beautifully imaginatively shot. And Moore gives a really good performance. And let me say quickly, Roger Moore, he was the first to say, oh, I can't act. He could. And obviously he could. It's, it's right there. And he has a sort of a persona which people see, which is fair enough. But there is a lot more. Obviously, surely it's obvious. And in any case, the man who haunted himself is a very good Yawn's performance. Like when Jonathan Frakes was suddenly amazing in that one episode of Next Generation when he loses his mind, goes a bit nuts, and his hair suddenly looks cool for once. Um, it's exactly like that. So there you go, Jimmy. That's my my quick jump in of basically, in a nutshell, logical for me. And also, I was in the same room with him at the Barbican, and he answered questions, and he told a story about upsetting the Muppeteers when he was on the Muppets, and I asked him what it was like being on the Muppets, and he said this story about, um, I told a joke, and the Muppeteers didn't like it. I said, what's green and smells of bacon? Kermit's fingers. And all the Muppets were like open mouths staring at him, and like it was like really awkward, but more didn't care. And he told that story because I asked him the question, so that was nice. And he was wearing really cheap-looking shoes, which I thought was odd. That was probably around 2004 five, I would say, maybe. Yeah, I would say. So anyway, that's very nice. What about you, Jimmy? I mean, holy shit. I always forget you had that interaction with him. It's so lovely and amazing. And I'm so My ex-girlfriend's mother saw him <laughs> buying shoes in Woking Peacock uh, Woking's Peacock Center once. So there you go. Yes, the brown loafers. They're probably the same ones I saw him in. So there you go. I mean, look, Sheps, that's bloody, that's such a wonderful, wonderful uh, summary. I, um, I, you know, he's, um, he, you, oh, I need to ask for the record, for the listeners and for myself, when you were saying about lending the man who uh, haunted himself, was that an uh, open invite or just for me? <laughs> no, no, that was for everyone but you. I thought that was implicit. I'm sorry. I should have been more specific. <laughs> Amazing. Um, <laughs> uh, look, I, I, I definitely was nowhere near the cinema for *Fear Eyes Only* or *Octopussy*, so it was, um, it was *A View to a Kill*, and that was my first Bond film at the movies. And you know, I, I, I haven't, you know, I was, I was across his Simon Templar, but the rest of the oeuvre for me, I'd need to revisit, honestly. So, um, but I think whenever asked, you know, my stock answer is, you know favorite and best with the bonds and i always say you know but more is my favorite and probably connor is the best but to be honest there are moments where more is the best too and that's really nice so he, he is top of the pantheon for me and uh, you know I, I guess a lot of his because he was um you know he, he's part of the bit of the connery you know whatever the cancel culture will probably have a field day with some of the things he gets gets up to in his films but i'll be honest with you I I almost feel like that would really be the exception for more over Connery as well because I actually think 
he is such a ladies man he's so smooth he's so there is something respectful about the way he kind of approaches that side of things too he's just super duper suave like you know he's he not... turns down sex a few times which doesn't you know which is not his usual reputation that's the thing he keeps doing things that go against his usual reputation more is sometimes very tough he can be very brutal as bond i mean he does very uh, brutal things um hardcore cold-blooded shooting people in the face um he shoots this guy in the in the forehead like well he does that loads but especially that guy in uh, octopus when that random guard goes in he's like pow he's like Poo! Uh, it's amazing so with that in mind yes he's very smooth he's very cool um he has, a, has again this reputation but it's unfounded and i've got another thing about this but i'll, I'll hold fire in for the moment but it's about just like there are different different like all of the bond moors aren't the same um all of the more bonds either uh, it's like live and let die in man with a golden gun is a thing and they feel the same and they've got the same texture it's like jaws one and two and then Spy Who Loved Me is like big and it's still 70s, so it's not glossy as such, but it's big and it's epic. And then Moonraker, which is exactly the same plot, and it's bigger and more epic. And it, and so those two are, are a set. So it's, you know, and then another set, got Few Eyes Only and Octopussy, which do work together, not as obviously as the other two examples still. And then View to a Kill, which shouldn't exist. It's nuts. Moore had some work done on his face. He looks like a cat. Um, amazing, wouldn't change it for the world, but it's weird. And I'm not going to turn down a seventh Moore film. It's like seven, you insane? Moore said he was going to quit during the making of Moonraker. I saw this interview with him in Rio. This is definitely my last one. That was number four, seven, Jimmy. So, yeah, yeah, it would have been interesting had, say, Dalton done a version of You to a Kill and then done another one after License to Kill, Property of a Lady, his place. Um, and, and, you know, I'm sure one day we'll probably get to a third Dalton Jimmy. I'm sure it's on the cards. But in any case, they're all very separate entities, uh, and the Moors are no exception. They're like different tones, and you know, and his performance and the style is, is different in those categories. I would say. So that's another thing. Chefs, <laughs> uh, I I love him. That's it in a nutshell. I feel like he's an uncle of mine and I know you feel that even more than I do but I, I, I feel like just even reading his autobiography and everything just I really felt an affinity to him and and he was such a big part of growing up and what Bond means and what movies mean and everything he what a legend what a legend so um, yeah yeah very excited to explore his movies with you and as you said uh, just before we started recording I think we might do a bit more of a, a deeper dive into the more of it all. And maybe I'll watch the, the man who himself and stuff before that bubble yeah. stuff, Shep, so we can have a good old debrief. And yeah. Oh, that's... But, um, but yeah, so I mean, did you, we were going to do the order as well. Did you want to order the. Oh, yeah, yeah, what? yeah. Thank you for remembering. Um, and I have one more thing to say as well. Tell you what, very quickly, I'll just say I saw this, um, on, it was on YouTube just randomly, some that Bond thing came up. So I was just listening to Bond stuff and it was on the TV. And it was uh, the Royal Albert Hall concert from last year. Yeah, the, the anniversary, 60th anniversary of Dr. No. So it was 2002. And uh, and so Dame Shirley Bassey comes on and she's proper glamour and she belts out Goldfinger, you know, the opener, real you know, showstopper straight off, pow! And um, and then, you know, she, well, she does Diamonds Are Forever, then she does Goldfinger. And you're like, yay! And she fucks off. And everyone's like, Moonraker? And she's like, nope. And 
and it's very nice. And then like Lulu comes on and she sings and it's wonderful. But it's like you you, you imagine Shirley Bassey came on being called you know pulled by unicorns. And and Lulu looks like she's just come from Tesco's doing the morning shop. It's really adorable because she's still Lulu and she's still really cool. And then she belts out Golden Gun and it's lovely. But it's like, that was nice. You're like, all right. Um, so I liked that. Um, that was just something else I wanted to shout out. In terms of all of that, what is, what is your Roger Moore order of film? And, you know, these are not set in stone. Mine... Mine move around. Some, um, they, mine have not been set ever. Uh, there, there's a, you know, my first two are constant, but some of them have shifted over the last 15 years. Interesting. Interesting. And maybe they will continue to. So let's hear yours. All right, chefs. Well, oh. look, I, I, this is a hand ringer for me too, and things have bounced around somewhat. And I think the surprise will be, maybe not surprise, but number three. And actually also how low down one truly heart is actually but anyway everyone's it, they, they've got to land somewhere right they've got to land somewhere yes to be very clear nothing is less than four star on this list so that's a, that's a very right. important point yeah and um, so number one live and let die number two spy who loved me i should actually qualify live and let die is my favorite bond film so there's no. there's never really been much doubt um Number two, Spy Love Me. Number three, View to a Kill. Ships, yeah. Interesting. And uh, number four, Moonraker. Nice. And it's, it's kind of for enjoyability factor, honestly. Yes. Well. Five, Fioris yes. Only. Six, Octopus. Yeah, I feel like I could be talked to swap those around, but five, Fioris Only, six, Octopus, and seven, Man with the Golden Gun. Right. And I think Man with the Golden Gun might be my only four star. <laughs> I mean, in some way, I would give most of those in my own personal category, I would give them five star. Not all of them, most, but the others I would give four star in that same level of category. Um, yeah, I know what you're... What's your deal with Golden Gun for you? What, you know, why it's your... Least? I feel like I've seen it the most of all of them, oddly, even more deliberate than I feel like I've just seen it the most, and... If I, at my, in the end, because I was wringing my hands so much, I thought to myself, if I was, if it's Sunday afternoon, which is the one I'm least likely to put on, it's probably Man with the Golden Gun because yeah. it, the the prospect is not exhausting because it's really mean spirited because I love the movie and I love more and I love Bond, but yeah. you know, it's the least enticing prospect to watch him and Chris yeah. sort of stalk around Christopher Lee's complex for 20 minutes, you know. Yeah. When you it know is a flawed film as well. Plot-wise, it doesn't hold together. There's no logic to it. And, yeah, they, they're, they're still trying to do things with more. They haven't found their rhythm. So we still deliver a diversion of more, which is fine. And the whole slapping thing, it, it doesn't work, you know, in this context, especially because it doesn't make sense, because she, you know, Ward Adams was the one who wanted him to come there. So why didn't you say? Stupid. So, but, yes, there are elements to that film I really like. That's probably as deep as we should go because it's dangerous, dangerous, slippery, slippery. That's a lovely list. As I say, my, well, mine, yeah, mine is my favourite is Spike and Love Me, and it's that's also it's a it's such a rip off, but that's my joint favourite bond with much with Love and basically with Living, Living Daylights as well. But that's a whole different thing. Um, with that in mind, Spike and Love Me, then Living Let Die, and both of them are untouchable it's like a, a pint of guinness those two are right at the top and it's very separate um but my third one is fiori's only then it's octopusy then it's moonraker 
then it's golden gun, then it's uh, into a kill. So there you go. Yeah, what do you think about that? Uh, my problem with you to a kill is that he looks like a cat. I really like so much of it. Uh, I wouldn't change it for the world. Zoran is a fantastic villain. I never hear Walker talk about it or get asked about it in interviews. It really annoys me. Um, so, yeah, um, I love it, but it is my least favourite. Um, yeah, it's all over the place, totally. I love the hardcore bit, but it doesn't work. Oh, I agree. I, I feel like, well, funnily enough, I would suggest of all of the uh, Moors or Bonds, that's the one that's influenced my pitch the most, Shep's View to a Kill. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Well, may I say, this is doubly interesting, I'll just say now in that case, that mine is the most influenced by Golden Gun. So we're both heavily, well, we're both we're heavily influenced by two of my least favourites. So in so many ways, we're in backward sync. Um but I know you actually have a bit of a special relationship with Peter Kill, and I know I borrowed your video a lot. So fair play to that. And it's the first Bond film I remember seeing at the cinema, so that does kind of count it. Um, in Cranley, by the way. Yeah, where did you see Peter Kill at the cinema? I think it was in London. I think it was in London just before. Would, would, it, would it stack up to say just before? 85. Yeah, it would be. Yeah. Where were we? Which London, London do you think? I mean, which like I reckon what? Stratomodian. Stratomodian. St. Rethamodian. Roasted has probably been gentrified by now. St. Rethamodian. <laughs> no more rough Odians. No, no, no. Only clean, <laughs> fresh cinema now. Yeah, Odians down. Oh, well, look, that's wonderful. Let's move right on, though, for that. Yes, that's good. That's good. Um, is there anything else before we jump into your lovely, lovely pitch, which I cannot wait for? Oh, bless you, Sheppy. I... Uh... God, I, well, look, I tell you this, I nearly called mine, and so this is not even related to it because it would have had to be a slightly different plot, but I nearly called mine Valentine at one point uh, because oh. I thought it would be good to do a little one-word, Aaron Roger, the lover of the Bonds, you know what I mean? It'd be quite nice. As, yeah, sort of, yeah, that, that would but, work. But I think the standalone, he's got to, for me, I thought, out of due deference to Sheppy, I'm not going to touch Octopussy should be the one-word name. that. <laughs> Because that's the thing. I don't know whether you had any trouble with the the name of your one or what to do. Because you know, I guess most of the, all the Fleming stuff is kind of taken. There's not right. not many places to go. The portrait of a lady, as you said before, but uh, right. uh, property, property. Sorry, yeah. And I'll be sued by Jane Campion. <laughs> and I just, uh, yeah, I, I I think I um, that's a very good gag, by the way, that Campion one, but. <laughs> And I'm not talking about Jane Campion. When I say I'm a tall Campion fan, I remember do you remember that ITV show? Campion for Life. I don't think I ever saw it. I was too busy watching peak practice. Go on. In the oh. end, my title is just a, you know, it's a Christmas cracker job. It's just a simple, like, you know, fudging of kind of something dramatic, like they do sometimes, yeah. My title sort of really popped up really, really quickly. Um, and it's sort of out of nowhere. And I just was like, right, fine, good. Yes, like when you're Christmas shopping, you're like, yes, good, fine, whatever. Yes, and you grab it. Like, yes. Um, and so I never let go of it. And it's weird, but it's weird in a kind of a quantum of solace sort of thing. Um, so, um, so, so that's all I'm going to say about that now. I can't wait to hear what you went uh, beyond Valentine, what you went with instead. It's all in the wrist. Before we do get to the pitch, though, I cannot resist this. 
then it you'll be furious at me for doing this when you won't really but it might okay. it might then trigger a whole zag quickly but i want to just quickly say and i i meant to put this in and i wanted to talk about it because Moore is my favorite bond for the one-liners and i think he does them better than arnie does in his movies like i just i think his throwaway lines is a master class and i i wanted to just put in like one and then i you know my favorite if you like of all time and then i just couldn't resist putting in two right because they just and they're not necessarily the best and if i probably thought about it i might even choose a different one but they're the ones that stay with me whenever i think of roger moore and i think of like the killer one-liner or the killer moment or the throwaway and so i i've got the one that i think is just his most nails moment which is the in golden gun funnily enough um where he's pointing the gun at the gentleman's uh does he say groin in the quote i can't remember yes but yeah, yeah. But it's, oh. it's the speak now or forever hold your peace <laughs> I love yes. that. absolutely amazing. Yes, which i i think more came up with that line i might be misremembering because i read that autobiography too uh which should have been called the more the merrier it was called my word is my bond shit um but anyway more's <laughs> the pity would have been the sequel but it's called last man standing it's triply bad luck now um yes <laughs> and then my favorite my personal favorite that just this makes me the happiest i think maybe it's in the top 10 makes me the happiest of any movie quote which is basically uh drax and more going hunting and they'd have to recreate this in your moonraker region oh, yeah, well, yeah. which is the old <laughs> bond aiming for the birds and then shooting the sniper and drax giving it a you miss mr bond and then the sniper falling out the tree and we're giving it a did i as you said <laughs> good sports and then what i love the most about it is they're still hanging out together like yeah, yeah. bond is trying to kill him and yet they maintain their civility so, yeah they don't break it's like when uh, like a coyote runs off the cliff and looks down but they don't look down they don't break the illusion even though he's just shot someone right in front of them who's about to shoot him that's the point when he should have turned around and just knocked Drax in the face with the barrel of the butt. Um, yeah, amazing. Yeah, no, that's really fun. They do. They don't break the civility. <laughs> At least with Stromberg, he's like, waits till Roger Sterling gets off. And he says, wait till they're ashore, then kill him. Which is stupid. Kill him once he got him, but never mind. Um, brilliant. What? Yes. Um, I... Jimmy, I'm so excited. Well, this is one of the things I love about Roger is that of all the bonds i think he enjoys the job the most like you know yeah i mean craig is the uber extreme of the opposite isn't he but yeah he really enjoys the job and like you know of course the perks being he gets to bed lots of lovely ladies and enjoy nice clothes and nice drinks the lifestyle and, of course, and, like, yeah. and i there's an i haven't really lent into it uh but there's a definite opportunity to just drag mine out and it would because mine at the moment runs like a 90 minute clocker and it should be too it should be a more big letterbox one so there's a definite opportunity and i'll tell you when it is like you know this is the point where he befriends the guy civility ensues despite lots of sniper attempts or something you know maybe but anyway there's definitely a chance for that in mind. All right. <laughs> can i say about moore's quips um he is of course the master and he's amazing and all of his amazing of course like yes yeah, so that 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 makes an appearance more um 
you know, I mean, Connery had, you know, shocking and really invented it in a big, bad way in Goldfinger. Um, so, you know, more did come from all of that. But he's so naturally gifted at the throwaway remark. And he's so naturally witty anyway, so it's wonderful timing. Um, and it's great. And it works with, you know, often real brutality, like uh, the Spy Love Me with the tie. And he's like, hey, what a horrible chap. But it's actually like a horrible death. Um, so yeah, I like all of that. Amazing, amazing. All right, Shams. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in, but I give you a Joker card to play. If you remember what you were gonna say before, you just interrupt me and just 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 go for it and just let me know. And then yeah, no, that's all right. Uh, if it pops up, no, that's okay. So this is titled "The Other Side of Fear," Sheppy. The other side of fear. Um, oh, I love it. A, a bit of a platitude. There's a play on things in a minute, which you'll get to. But um, but um, and one of the other problems we face with doing this is that you know Moore didn't sit on his laurels for long. So you know this for me is having to come out at a ridiculous time, which is 1978 between Spider-Man yeah. and Raker. You know we're really cranking them out here. Um, I don't yeah. know if you had a similar problem with your dating of it, but anyway. Um, so, but I, I, it was really to be able to play around with more at that point in his time, which is yeah. sort of, yeah. So, um, you could argue prime more, you know, Spider Who Loved Me, you could argue prime, prime more. So, I'm not going to give you more than that. Uh, and uh, I'll, I'll give you like people as they pop up, or at least if they haven't popped up, I'll give you the rest of the cast in the credits as you would get okay. them online as a nice surprise, you know. So, well, that's nice. Okay, so uh, we've got more walking the gun barrel with the iconic theme, huge flares, of course. Very happy with that. This is pure seventies peak, more as he said. Um, and I've just said after the shot, our dead sniper white barrel spins down bottom right and turns into a shot of the outside of the Vatican at night time. We get establishing shots. Then the chambers of the Vatican and a middle-aged uh, Italian priest is donning his robes. A knock at the door, he opens it, and Moore is standing at the door in a black polar neck looking uber nails, and he punches <laughs> the priest. Gasp, I put, ex exclamation mark. What <laughs> doing cooking a member of the club? <laughs> but the priest has a gun and tussles with Bond until Bond finally wins him over and knocks him out, taking the robe and a brown package of cash. Bond bundles the, the priest imposter into a cupboard and we see the original priest, a more elderly gentleman, and he's been tied and gagged. And Bond takes the gag out of the priest's mouth and the priest immediately starts yelling wild Italian expletives very loudly. And Bond sort of winces and puts the gag back in the priest's mouth <laughs> and says, forgive me, Father. <laughs> Cut two. We see KGB agent Pola Ivanova entering the Vatican oh. complex with a package. So here's your first cast member, Sheppy. We have Fiona Fullerton making a bit of a cameo here. I thought it would be quite fun to see the origin story of Bond and Pola. Yes. You're playing God, and I like it. <laughs> well, let me say this as well. Like with um, my, my first cinema experience being View, and of course, uh, fancying Tanya Roberts as I did, but I think Fiona Fullerton in the Jacuzzi had an even more uh, profound impression on young Jimmy in terms of Bond's ladies uh, to a kill. You know that was meant to be Barbara Back doing a cameo that mm -hmm. that role, and she dropped out, and 
So, um, lucky you. Ah, cool. Okay. Anyway, so uh, we have. Let me get back. Yeah. So, so Polar enters the Vatican complex with a package. Um, and like I've said here, I thought it'd be fun to see her origin story with Bond in the pre-title sequence. She enters a confessional booth, and Moore is in the adjacent booth in the priest robes. Now, <laughs> I put here, I've literally typed this out, so I remembered to say it to you. We're going for the confessional, which is going to be a flip on the cue engagement with Moore that I happen to love, and is a bit of self-sacrilege, because it's one of my favourite cue Bond moments. Um, and I live with it and think about it daily as well. But it's the old, you know, forgive me, Father, I have sinned. And Q gives <laughs> well, that's putting it mildly 007. <laughs> anyway, anyway. <laughs> I mean, there's no reason for Q to be there. Just that, That's not his job to hang out <laughs> pretending in, like, Greece, meeting Bond, pretending to be a priest. But, yeah, I love that too. Brilliant. <laughs> anyway, I've derailed myself here. But, but basically... Um, so Polar in the booth to Bond posing as the priest and says uh, in Russian, you have the payment. And Bond says also in Russian, show me the encryptor. Well, with a Russian accent, not a Roger Moore accent. And uh, Polar has what looks like a Kodak camera film in her hand. And she hesitates and says, Vladimir. Bond hesitates back and says, yes. And then Vladimir has been a cheeky wrong name as a test. Uh-oh. Polar bolts. Bond clocks the bolt at a beat and chases her through Vatican City. I put, of course, there's a moment where they run through the Sistine Chapel, Polar knocking the scaffold of an artist touching up the wee penis on the creation of Adam <laughs> in the ceiling. The artist brush zips across the roof from the winky, making it look like he, I put winky in there just because it's a Sheppy word and it makes me happy. <laughs> zips across the roof from the winky, making it look like he has a six-foot schlong and the artist himself <laughs> is then left hanging precariously by the scaffold. Bond loses a little ground on Polar as he sets a pew beneath the artist and helps him down and says, that was a close brush. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to, I played around with Michael Hangulo for ages. And oh. <laughs> um, so anyway, their chase gets outside Vatican City and Polar hops onto an awesome black motorbike. I've just put whatever was top of the range and fastest for the time um, for some early Bond product placement. And she's got her helmet on, which means that this person, she, the, the female stunt driver, can do lots of cool stunts, which probably wouldn't be kind of Fullerton. But who knows? Maybe she could um, do half the yeah. stuff that happens next. Um, bon commandeers a Vespa, and there is a chase through the streets of Rome past piazzas and monuments. Awesome stunt work. I've put shaky close-ups on more with a blue screen behind him. Perhaps the, <laughs> same, shot of, perhaps the same shot of the Colosseum twice, if you watch this too many times. And, <laughs> I put close squeaks, a bit of collateral damage. The Italian police also in pursuit. The final stunt of the pre-title has Polar actually ride her bike along the wall of the Trevi Fountain, off and then up the Spanish steps, all on the bike. She stops halfway up the steps. Uh, Bond is in pursuit, attempting the Trevi wall on his Vespa, and uh, Polar pulls out the gun, shoots Bond's tyre, causing him to fall into the water and get picked up by the cops. Cut to a slightly bedraggled, rarely seen, momentarily defeated Moore Bond out of custody and back at his hotel. On en- I mean, it would only take Bond a phone call and he'd be released by any police in the world, right? Um, on entering his room, he immediately senses something is awry and suspects someone is in there. He pulls out the old water PPK. There's champagne, room service, oysters. Polar is waiting for him in his bed. Moore has been moored. 
<laughs> so your bond, more Cox's gun, James Bond. Pola says, don't you want to know who I sold it to? Moore uncocks the gun and is immediately back to Swab. He puts the gun on the bedside table and starts to unbutton his shirt. <laughs> <laughs> How did you know I wasn't your man? Pola purses her lips. Your aftershave. Moore's eyebrow leaves his forehead and returns again. <laughs> <laughs> Pola says, they paid a fortune. And Moore just says, I'll bet they did. But first things first. And they tumble into bed together and we tumble into the credits. The other side of fear. <laughs> and I've put oh this as a cousin of you to a kill for a number of reasons. We've got for the theme tune, Sheppy, I've gone with Mick Jagger partnering with David Gilmore of Pink Floyd. Oh, dude. A rocky number. A rocky number. <laughs> and I've got no real... <laughs> no tune to it, really. But I'll give you a little beat of the, the, the chorus. A society yeah. falls and Judy calls. The snake's kiss is fatal and it's time to turn the tables on the other side of fear. Something like that. That's and amazing. <laughs> God, I would, what I wouldn't give for a sliders machine, I must see this film. I <laughs> thought about Rolling Stones um, and I didn't go with it, I'm glad to say. But yeah, I, I, I thought, why not? 70s could have been. Nice. Yeah, alternative universe, definitely. I took the Paul McCartney break away for Live and Let Die sort of vibe. I know it was Wings time for him, I think, wasn't it? But anyway, the point is, yeah. he's taken an icon. Yes, yes. Jago is, and yeah, Jago is definitely uh, someone who could have been easily. And, you know, Sheena Easton, you know, great. I wouldn't change anything, but I'd like to see these other, you know, you know what I mean? Lulu, God's sake, get down to Tesco's. You know, get Jagger. Wouldn't it be nice if Jagger did a version, like a cover of Live and Let Die, oh. and like McCartney did a cover of like Satisfaction or something? But I want to hear a Jagger. It's like Stan Lee writing Batman. Uh, I'd like. This is brilliant I, stuff. No, mate. Bless you. Well, I tell you what, I've just realized, and I don't know why I didn't even think of it, but I mean, Madonna Stalin died another day. There's absolutely room for a Jagger cameo here. There's mm. a party scene, and Jagger. He acted. Yeah. Three, Jack. <laughs> but I feel like there's definitely, there's a party scene. That party scene is also the opportunity for Bond to start, you know, ingratiating himself with the with the villain. And it's definitely the chance for, for a Jagger cameo there. He would be in it. Yeah. So, of course, in the credits, Sheps, we get our cast. So we've got Roger Moore as Ian Fleming's James Bond 007. We've got, I mean, this isn't in order of importance. I put our regulars, Desmond Lelouin, Lo Lois Maxwell, Bernard Lee M. We've got um, Fiona Fullerton as Polar, Richard Keel as Jaws. We have that. Oh, nice. See with where I placed it. Um, yes. Olivia Newton John, Sheppy. Is gonna oh, be wow. Uh, James Hong is, is the main villain. Um, oh, wow. Um, we've got then with Barry Humphreys. <laughs> and, uh, naturally there's actually some uh, some recently deceased uh, Aussies in here so I've just got to oh, say apologies to their relatives nice. families and um, so with Barry Humphreys and Telly Savalas and I've got oh, to be oh. very clear this is a cameo Sheppy so don't get too excited but right. I know we've had another version since doesn't make sense that never stopped Bond that never stopped Bond ever in any way and, uh, uh, so it, that's it, fine um, I'm just giving myself one extra little moment to, to, to try and stem the horror of the opening of your eyes only. But it... <laughs> oh, hey, I love it all. 
That, by the way, don't get me started on the beginning of few hours only. I've already talked about that on a different podcast for at least three hours. Oh, amazing. The cat, the alarm. Please, go on. So anyway, we have, like, obviously straight after the credit. Oh, I did I, I thought I'd put in... No, who directed this thing? Let me just see. Oh, bollocks. I thought I'd put in here for you as well. I hope I'm reading the right bloody one. Um, but anyway, I had, uh, like, you know, you will get, oh, I do have it here, yeah, in the credits. And by way of tease for you, dear Sheppy, we see our mm-hmm. dancing ladies gyrate around images of Rome, the Colosseum, the Great Wall of China, and the Sydney Opera House and Bridge. So there you go. There's our little tease for what's to come. Oh, I love it. Um, with your and and I guess the other side of fear being perhaps the other side of the world as well. That's my little. Thing. Oh, that's nice. Well, this is one of the things he's never been to Australia. I can remember if in our in my Diamonds Are Forever Majesty's Secret Service sequel, if I took him to Australia in that, and I heavily suspected I did because I've, I'm well aware that he's never been to Australia in a film, and that's a really good location for him to go to. So yes, though I didn't, is what I'm also saying. So that's also good. Good stuff. But we start in London, not Aussie. Excuse Shep. me. Uh, who, who directed this? Oh, bloody hell, Sheps. I've let you down. Well, let's see. Lewis Gilbert, then, if it's yeah. between... The, you know, the, you know it's, it's, a, it's a Gilbert trilogy. I'm typing Lewis Gilbert in for the record. Brilliant. It's real now. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's great. Um, okay. So, uh, where are we? London. Red bus in front of Big Ben. Classic. Um, money penny working away at her desk a door is buzzed and opens but no one steps in and money penny says hello there's no answer money penny opens her side drawer there's a 70s standard issue pistol in there an umbrella handle emerges from the door frame hooks the hat stand brings it down to a perfect 45 degree angle and bond's hand hangs his hat on a peg releases the stand and the umbrella handle disappears back behind the frame money penny says james the handle reappears with a pristine the, the handle of the umbrella reappears with a pristine white handkerchief in surrender if we would have this prop we'd know the initials jb are stitched into it money penny takes, right. the <laughs> penny takes the handkerchief if you're here to surrender james you'll need another one of those for you know who and her indi- eyes indicate M's office. And Moore <laughs> says, oh, no. And he's very smug. Uh, M caught a sniffle again. <laughs> and Money Penny smirks. Joke all you want, James. But this time, the intercom crackles. Money Penny, when 007 gets here, send him straight in, would you? Money Penny says, he's here already. And Bond says, ciao, M. And M just says, good grief. One moves towards the door and Money Penny says, Play nice. He's in with the Australian ambassador in there. And Moore gives it a straight, plummy struth and opens the door. Ebbs <laughs> with this Australian ambassador. I haven't bothered casting him. And a very attractive lady. This is Miss Kimber, Olivia Newton John. Oh. Uh, and M says, uh, What do you know of Z Hong, uh, 007? And more goes into one on the personal Wikipedia Scaramanga style here. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't written it out, but you know, it's the grew up on a farm, hated potatoes. His father was a fisherman. You know. <laughs> 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 and, uh, crucially, owner of the largest iron ore firm in Asia with a significant base in Australia. Well, Bond, he's plotting something, and we think it's related 
to the encryptor you managed to lose in Italy that your lead sold. Q is in the room too and is on a humongous computer attached to a projector and he's clicking through it old school with a clicker on a cord slide by slide. And on his clicky pickies, um, we see Polar sell the film, you know, the little thing that she, broke or whatever it was, uh, to Jaws, to Richard Keel, and then Jaws meeting with an anonymous Chinese cat in Beijing, and then that same cat being seen with uh, Mr. Hong in Beijing. So we've got our thread there. Um, M continues the exposition. Uh, he's invited Miss Kimber, our renowned Australian uh, experts on oceanic submersibles, to a launch party in Beijing. We need you to attend as Miss Kimber's escort. See what you can glean. We need to tread very carefully here, Bond. Her Majesty is watching. Q powers down the projector and flips a disc that had all of the pictures um, of the exchange with Jaws out of the computer hard drive. <laughs> and Bond says, you had all those images on that little thing, Q? Q hands it over to Bond and says, it's called a floppy disk 007. Bond gives it a bend test. One day, Q, we'll have to have a little chat about the difference between hard and floppy. <laughs> uh, Miss Kimber gives a slight giggle. Q snatches the disc back. Now pay attention, 007, with an upgrade to your watch. This is, and the watch, of course, is our key tool for the movie. Um, and this particular watch fires a magnetic disc that will attach to any metal and then explode. And uh, it's also got the, sorry, I should say, the disc explodes. So it would like, you know, ping a little disc out, disc attaches to something metal, and then at a certain appropriate countdown, explode. And I guess let's just say, for sake of argument, you could set the countdown on your watch as well if you wanted to, to one second, three seconds. Um, the watch has also got a mobile radio receptor that will bounce off any satellite in the world. Doesn't matter where you are. More tries on the watch and says, does it pick up the world service queue? Q clips the latches on the huge suitcases for the computer and says, when you're on that side of the world, 007, I think the last thing you want to be doing is to pick up the cricket score. Moore just says, fair point. Bit of an Ashes reference, Shep, keeping it topical. Um, <laughs> yeah. So we had our Olivia Newton-John, Miss Kimber Giggle, but she's a tough cookie. And generally, as a point of uh, clarification, having none of it with 007. Yeah. The pair of them check in for their flight to uh, Beijing. And as they check in, the stewardess smiles and says, you're the last to check in for the flight. And we have a vacancy in first class. Will either of you like an upgrade, a free upgrade? And Bond, with a little twinkle in his eye to Miss Kimber, just says, darling, like that. And, um, and anyway, so Kimber gets a free upgrade. I don't even know why I bothered with this, but it's just a bit of a silly moment. Um, and then uh, and Kimber says to Bond, you look, I'm, I'm not even attempting to live in John Aussie accent, but, you know, I'm grateful, but don't think the chivalrous behaviour means anything, James. Miss Moneypenny told me all about you. And Moore looks disappointed. And then we get a comedy bit of beats here where um, Miss Kimber, Olivia Newton-John, gets a complimentary champagne and Roger sits down in uh, economy on the aisle seat of a three, an older fella at the window, and clocks a huge guy coming in for the middle seat. Halfway through, it's a bonus to squish into a <laughs> Halfway through the flight, Kimber comes back to check on him, and he's going over paperwork and put studious more here. I mean, you <laughs> and I were furious only, like a nose cue, not a banana. Come on. It's that kind of vibe of more. He's actually doing his homework before the mission. I'm looking at pics and maps, etc. 
Yes, and I also love that you're putting him out of his natural habitat, which I, I like and I've tried to do as well. It's, that's good. It makes me really happy. <laughs> um, and just as she leaves him, she says, thank you again for the seat. And the meal cart comes past and gives more a wedding singer Drew Barrymore elbow smack. Um, <laughs> or just gives it a withering look. Um, so anyway, we have our Beijing party and black tie ofs. Moore makes acquaintance with uh, Mr. Hong, uh, view to a kill, fly fishing vibes. Um, this is obviously, this, there's a chance here for like, you know, more ingratiating as I discussed. This is the moment and this is Jack's cameo. So Moore and Kimber feel that they have the trust of uh, Hong and are taken upstairs for Kimber to look at some plans for the submersible Hong is making. And he's got questions regarding the pressure depth, et cetera, et cetera, that uh, Miss Kimber is able to answer. And she confirms it would take the depth and weight that he requires. And Hong just says, thank you for confirming, my dear. And uh, Kimber sort of questions and says, but why would you be taking a load that big to the bottom of the ocean? And at this moment, Jaws enters the room and Bond knows immediately their cover is blown. Um, Empire Strikes Back vibes. Um, and Hong says, he arrived just before you did, Mr. Bond. And Moore says, are you going to kill us? And Hong says, no, I mean, I would. But someone else wants that pleasure. So anyway, we cut to dawn breaking and we're driving out to the Great Wall of China in the back of an army truck. And we've got Jaws opposite Bond and Miss Kimber. Um, and Jaws smiles his smile and Bond gives us a little sneer back. Um, mm-hmm. so to the top of the Great Wall and another army truck arrives and greets them. This one has Telly Savalas as Blofeld. Blofeld gives uh, a big explanation uh, expositionary speech, you know, Bond, this wall was built 700 years before Christ himself. He's a bit American, as Telly is, you know. Yeah, always it's Telly Savalas, isn't it? Yeah, totally. <laughs> that was really good. <laughs> I see him in his brown roller. This is great. And Buck just... Charles Gray. <laughs> this was built, yeah, so this was built 700 years before Christ himself to consolidate the territory and protect the country from northern tribes, colonizers like the British. Jaws ties Bond and Kimber to a luge at the top of the... Uh, I don't know if you knew this, Sheppy, but at the top of the Great Wall, there's a luge that takes you oh. several kilometres back down to the bottom, and it's awesome fun. Um, but uh, and, uh, and Blofeld says, Miss Kimber, I'm sorry you got caught up with this fella. What can I tell you? He's been unlucky with a lot of broads. More in uber nails mode, says, what's the matter, Blofeld? You don't want blood on your hands this time? Blofeld chuckles and says, I just wanted to be as messy as possible. And uh, with the two of them tied to this luge, George gives them a push and sets them off down the mountain from the Great Wall. Then he and Blofeld inexplicably leave without watching to see if they die. <laughs> uh, and that, by the way, I've got to tell you, is the end of your Blofeld cameo because he just assumes like, that he's dead, ready for Furious Only. Yeah, yeah, he's off. <laughs> um, Bond and Kimber are herring away down the mountain, certain death. Um, but Bond spots Bushland a kilometre ahead, a curve in the track, and manages to somehow time and fire one of the discs from his watch. The magnet attaches to the railhead, explodes, and they're able to roll away from the luge, with Moore saying, well, that derailed things. Bond and Kimber put two and two together and realise that Hong's plan is to destabilise the iron ore supply, Max Zorin style by setting up an earthquake-inducing bomb below the ocean so that the world depends on Hong's distribution and Blofeld must be in on the cut somehow. Where would they be making the bomb? Well, Kimber has a hunch and knows someone who'll take them there. 
we're now in Aussie for the rest of the movie. So we cut to Hong in his outback lair in Australia, lamenting a delay in progress on the submersible. For that delay, a chief engineer is dispatched in a vat of Aussie brown snakes. So that's kind of our piranhas for this one. Um, Bond and Kimber arrive in Australia and are a regional airstrip. And we meet Barry Humphreys, a friend of Kimber and a prosy, proper Aussie fair dinkum bloke. They're going to charter to fly them into the outback to Hong's lair. Maybe Barry Humphreys has a pet huntsman and other cliches, that sort of stuff. But he's fun. And spoiler alert, he's the chum who gets killed in this one when they return to the plane later on. So, um, the doomed friend, yes, yes. And uh, so this little trio of uh, Barry, Miss Kimber and Bond get to the uh, spot in the outback. Bond and Kimber break into Hong's lair and discover plans for the optimal spot for the charge to go off in terms of fault crossover. Well, for the purpose of this story, it's going to be about 50 kilometers south of Sydney in the Tasman Sea. Hong has already left his lair and is headed for Sydney and is making plans to launch the submersible. Jaws catches Bond and Kimber in the lair, and Bond and Jaws have a fist fight, culminating in Jaws somehow being toppled into the vat of brown snakes um, that smothered and bit to pieces the chief engineer. And Moore and Kimber make their escape, and Jaws manages to get out of the pit and just brush the snakes off. <laughs> <laughs> That's the last we see of Jaws in this flick as well, and we're essentially nice. real time here. Bond and Kimber are out of the lair, but stuck in the outback. Barry Humphreys has been killed. They've got nowhere to go. They haven't got the plane has been, let's just say the fuel line's been cut. Bond activates the radio waves on his watch and manages to get in touch with Q in London. Q says, you're in luck, Bond. We've a bunker a kilometre due south. And basically inside the secret bunker or part of the Commonwealth Secret Service, I guess, packs. <laughs> and inside the bunker is a bullet jet. And I'm imagining this a bit like Luke's ship in A New Hope, only oh, nice. and narrower. Bond and Kimber jump into this bullet jet and essentially travel at about 300 kilometers per hour, at least, if not maybe thousands, across the desert outback to try and catch Hong and Time in Sydney. They're passing skipping roos and at one point passing the Indian Pacific train service, which runs from Perth to Sydney. And we're going to keep it to a kid. I was thinking maybe it could be J.W. Pepper, but I've got more than enough more cameos here. Um, so we keep it to a kid. And uh, Bond just gives the kid a little Roger wave as they pass through on this jet thing. Um, well, at least he doesn't fuck him up, like, in Man with a Golden Gun. <laughs> yes. Yes, or even the Moonraker. Anyway, um, so, we, so we're set for our grand finale in Sydney Harbour. Hong is loading his submersible into a boat to take it out to the big spot where it will detonate. Um, Bond commandeers a speedboat, and we have a from Russia with love, live and let die, chase through the harbour. During the chaos, Kimber confirms for us that it doesn't matter where that submersible is activated and blows up, as long as it's not on the fault line. Bond gives it a hold of steady to Kimber on the boat as he attempts a crazy boat-to-boat jump to take down Hong. Of course, Martin Gray, stuntman extraordinaire, completes the real stunt, and, uh, and jumps onto uh, Hong's boat. Um, Moore dispatches uh, Hong's driver, and it's Bond versus Hong with a submersible bomb, and Bond manages to activate it and toss Hong overboard, hoisted by his own platard just before the fault line. 
Hong explodes beneath the surface in a huge plume of seawater and a bit of PG guts. More under mm. his breath. He was out of his depth from the start. More <laughs> back to the original boat. And says, Miss Kimber, are you all right? And uh, Olivia Newton-John says, call me Lexa. And he says, Lexa? Lexa Kimber? She beams. I wish you told me that in London. So back in London, <laughs> we have back in London, a Royal Highness Elizabeth at the HQ. M and Q are a quiver with your majesties and being very deferential. The Aussie ambassador guy says, on behalf of the Commonwealth, ma'am, and, uh, and Q, uh, Q says, we've managed to locate Bond's watch and we should be able to there. And we cut to Bond and Kimber are in a Sydney hotel suite bed making out. The TV in their suite switches on and they are on live feed to London. This is end of Moonraker style. And this is the beat for <laughs> this is the beat for beat of Moonraker as Q says, Bond? Bond? He he can't hear us, sir. And in one of the riskiest ever endings, Bond disappears beneath the sheets. And we see Kimber oh. give it a oh James. <laughs> and M says, Where is he, Q? And Q says, I think he's going down under, sir. <laughs> oh my god, it can't fail. The crowd goes wild. James Bond will return in Moonraker. That's great. Um, that's really oh my god. Oh Jimmy, you've made me so happy. Um it exceeded all expectations, which is saying something because I was expecting quite a bit. It was great. Um I, 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 I could I could go nuts. I could go nuts. I like the idea that your it's like three epic Lewis Gilbert films made sequentially. You touching, you know it's like the Lord of the Rings, basically. And they're filming it all at the same time. All like the, the most recent Mission Impossible is that sort of thing. Um yeah, I love it. I love it. Oh Jimmy, look, we don't have time for the amount of gushing that I want to do. All I can tell you and when I re-listen, I'm gonna tell you more and more. Um, it was it ticked all the boxes and it made me very very happy. The more, the merrier. So uh, great job, wonderful, and I can see it, and I want to see it. No, uh, bless you, talk. man, bless you. Well, listen, that was it was fun to write, and it was it was fun. It was fun. Let me tell you this: I cannot bloody wait for this pitch. All right, keep your hair on. Okay, I'm gonna talk a bit. Um, about it, and then I'm gonna say the references, and 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 then I'm just gonna talk about the, the villain a bit, and then I'll get to it. Um, is the way I, I see this. Um, so with that in mind, um, like you, I well, first of all, there's definitely because I've done a big Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy with smiley stuff um, just when we first set this. So my mind instantly so went to sort of started from a Lacare starting point more than a Fleming in, in, in ways that will become obvious. Um so and there's a big like Cambridge five feel, you know, which happened in sixty three. So there's that and also, you know, the whole so so the main villain is is like a Kim Philby type who was this big, big mole in MI five who's working for the Russians in the sixties and during the war and everything. So so my villain here is like um a filthy Carla type, and Carla's like the big, the George Smiley's nemesis. So that that was really my starting off point. 
and also just basically my the, the, the way I was sort of seeing it was like I was saying like yours is the middle of the Lewis Gilbert epic trilogy um, mine is the third part of the trilogy starting with Live and Let Die then Man with a Golden Gun and then maintaining that kind of look and feel is this one so it, it makes it that into a trilogy and it has some of the size and not actually as much of the size it is smaller than for example Spy Who Loved Me um, and so so yes yeah, so that's that that was my go-to which again like I say it surprised me because I was expecting my mind to go to an octopusy type situation and um, so so that's nice and also I want to quickly say that the action and violence as, as described here I don't want to each time describe how it's shot so it's not like an 18 or whatever. Um, you know, it's all, this is 1975. So Live and Let Die was 73, Golden Gun was 74, this is 75, and then two years later, 77 is Spy. So it doesn't disrupt the timeline one bit. I considered getting rid of Diamonds Are Forever and, and having Live and Let Die there, and so giving a bit more time. But then I thought, I've already erased Diamonds Are Forever from existence in one pitch. I can't do it twice. So it's like yours. It's bang, bang, bang. Uh, and, and like yours, it's the same director. I thought, yes, it's a trilogy with a third part is uh, Guy Hamilton. Um, so, so that's nice. And I also, for the, the, the theme tune, I did consider, um, um, of course, Mick Jagger like, and uh, you know, Rolling Stones and also Iggy Pop crossed my mind um, which I thought was interesting oh um so so yes yeah, so with that in mind the the violence it you know it there's some blood uh, but it's mainly innuendo and suggestion as is you know but there's there's obviously a lot of death and violence but in a PG 1975 envelope um so there you go it's directed by Guy Hamilton I don't know who plays anyone I know who plays Bond and I know who plays, spoiler, it's Roger Moore and it's David Hedison returning as Felix. Um, and, and we've got Bernard Lee and Lois Maxwell. Here's a twist. There's no cue. And at a certain point, I was deep into this and I suddenly realised there was no cue. And Bond doesn't really, apart from one obvious bit at the beginning, he doesn't really have gadgets. And that wasn't a conscious decision, but I didn't want to shoehorn cue in. There is a scene at M's office at the beginning, and he could be there, but he wouldn't really serve no purpose. And since this is the uh, right, since this is the third part of that trilogy, and since Q isn't in Live and Let Die, it kind of works. So there's no Q in this, um, which is which again interesting. Yeah. Um the lady is just someone again, I could say I just could I could choose a a, a famous lady from the 70s but i just like no it's like most bond films usually in in the malls and everything i didn't know the people from anything else i mean you know death on the nile but you know so i'm saying this is like an italian actress she's in loads of italian things and she's the bond girl in this film and i she looks a bit like the woman from tombstone she's kind of like you know deep black hair and, and stuff and there's also the henchman who's act played by a nasty italian man uh, and in my and you know there you go. And in my mind, he looks like the henchman from Condor Man. One eye. This guy has both eyes, but that's what he looks like in my mind. So there you go. Um, and and I know who plays the big baddie. 
Um, so I guess I'll just get to it. And this big baddie is who I was describing. It's played by Patrick McGowan. And this is 1975's Patrick McGowan. Um, I, I think him and Moore, who, and they knew each other in real life. I think that would be a very strong dynamic. And so he is this Carla, uh, you know, uh, character, who I'm just going to talk about now a little bit. Um, just that he's like a Philby meets Carla type. Um, the the backstory is essentially he was this big spy in MI5 in the 60s, so 10 years before this film happened. And exactly like Tinker Taylor and exactly like real life, he was, uh, he was operating, working for the Russians as a top mole until he was unmasked by Bond. Uh, he was forced, therefore, to defect to Russia um, you know, and flee Britain and has since grown equally disillusioned with the, quote, equally corrupt, vain and embarrassingly ineffectual Russian government. So now, 10 years after all of that, he's now defecting from Russia, branching out, intent on setting up his own world government uh, that will live up to his own ideals. Um, and so, and his name is Sebastian Fanning. Now, there's a character in at least Octopussy, and I'm sure some of the books called uh, Jim Fanning. But um, Fanning, just I don't know. I, I'm like, fuck it. I, I don't know. I don't, it just popped in there. I'm keeping it. So Sebastian Fanning. He's like old school Le Carre spy master, chess player. You know, who foresees the board. You know, he sees the world as his board and all the others as pieces. And he's like to Bond, you know. A pawn, a rook, a bishop. And Bond's like, and yourself a king, I suppose. Precisely, Mr. Bond. I've always fancied taking a queen myself. That's not even in it, but this is just like early sort of things that sort of came out. Uh, in backstory, then, yes, it was Bond who unmasked Sebastian as the traitor and Mole in the 60s. Now, I wanted in my mind, I saw Patrick as being like an older mentor figure to Bond, but actually they're the same age. In fact, Moore is one year older. So the backstory I've got is that they met in the Second World War in the Navy doing operations. This is a true story. Ian Fleming, during the Second World War, helped devise elaborate charades to like give false information to the enemy. For example, again, true story, Fleming devised an idea where they got a, a, a dead hobo found in a ditch in Wales, cleaned him up, dressed him like a British general or admiral, um, put some like important, quote, documents on him, took him out to sea, threw him in the sea where they knew he would wash up on occupied coast, body was found, and it was like false information given to, to the Germans. So so that's what Fleming was getting up to during the war. So in this, in this, which is in my universe, it's based on a kind of a short story, or at least the title is. I don't know if any of this uh, is probably not from any of the books, but the title in this universe, which I haven't said yet, is from one of like a quantum of solace type short stories, the, you know, the Hildenberg rarity and so forth. Um, so in this case though, when they were working together doing these elaborate charades where uh, the, the Maguren character, Sebastian, who I call often Seb, just for convenience, he's, you know, he's devising these massive plans and charades to fool the enemy and Bond's carrying them out. And they're kind of like a team when they're both like pretty young. And then they rise up, but like Bond, you know, learns, you know, wisdom and patience and, you know, to play it cool. And he learns from Bond, you know, sometimes he's got to take the initiative. Um, but generally, he's just like, you know, um, they, but they're, they're not necessarily even necessarily Alec Trevelyan style friends. But there is like this kind of, even though they're, this, they're contemporaries, mentor, student sort of thing, but they do work really well together. So they gel. 
I don't think they hang out after work or anything. Um, but so it, and it's cleaned of teachers. Stuff. Love that you dropped um, in chats. This feels like GoldenEye, but way uber, way, way, way better. That's so cool. Well, that's, I, I, I like GoldenEye. It's yes. fascinating that with the uh, that all what Fleming was up to in the war and stuff. It's amazing, amazing. Yes, and Fleming's cousin was a chap called Christopher Lee, who was in the SIS, uh, stabbing motherfuckers. So there you go. <laughs> that's insane, isn't it? What a generation yeah. they are. What a gen. <laughs> you have an appointment with a work man alright then so um, so pre-credit sequence now I've gone into a lot of detail on this and not all of the action sequences are this much detail but this is frame by frame style okay amazing um, bearing in mind uh, are you doing the title with the the credits or... Uh, you know I can tell you first if you like I, I didn't deliberately not say I just I was saving it but do you want me to wait for the credits or want you to do it when you want to do it when, when it's all right well one other thing i'll say is i wanted bond to be out of his comfort zone in a lot of you know different locations and countries uh, but but specifically just like locations and it also occurred to me that you know when you think about it the bond writers have all sat down over the years and gone okay what what car chase can we do this time how about a beaten up you know yellow car or how about uh, a moon buggy or how about a double decker bus or how about a fire engine or how about he steals it from a showroom so all of this is like or how about a gondola for fuck's sake all of this is like yeah so i was having these thoughts of like what hasn't bond done what hasn't bond been in or you know steered or whatever or places environments so i was thinking in terms of stuff like that um with that in mind uh pre-credit uh the gun barrel opens this is 1975 so immediately after man with a golden gun um so gun barrel opens on a wide helicopter shot at dusk they move slowly looking straight down at sprawling irish countryside so ireland jimmy i don't know if he's, I don't think, I mean, people write in and tell me if I'm wrong, because I don't claim to be totally correct, but I don't think he's ever been in Ireland. So, sprawling Irish countryside, and then it moves over a tiny village, revealing a cluster of farmhouses, tiny homes, cottages, um, you know, some slight, maybe a schoolhouse or a church. Uh, they're all connected by winding lanes and tiny little, you know, stone walls that are ancient. And the shot passes over this, and then over some trees, you know, there's a smattering of trees, and then beyond, a little bit more woodland, a winding track, some small fields, some gates and all that shit, probably some sheep. Uh, and then the, the, the land drops away off the edge of a cliff, and below are rocks and the crashing black waves and the gulf of the ocean. It's island, it's twilight in a deep rural setting. And then cut to inside the tiny village, perched between miles of woods and hills and winding lanes, cliff overlooking the sea um and you know there's like a rusty car here and there and some beaten up farm equipment but there's not much around you know it's old school um we move in on the exterior of a large building evidently the village pub uh from inside comes warm light uh and you know lots of sort of non vaguely non-offensive although that's wishful thinking isn't it stereotypical irish folk music and banter coming from within um a car pulls up inside of a man and a woman, the woman behind the wheel. 
the passenger door opens and the man exits. We don't get a clear look at him. He's all in shadow and his head's cut off and stuff. Behind the wheel, the attractive yellow-haired woman speaks with an Irish accent, which I'm not going to even attempt because I can't do it and it will be horrible for everyone. But the woman says, uh, there, uh, there we are, finally found the place. I'll circle the village and pick you up in 20 minutes. Have fun. And we cut to inside, you know, she drives off, and we cut to inside the warm pub and it's all louder now and it's packed, the roaring fire and darts and rowdy locals and smoke and sweat and hearty, la hearty laughter, many, many pints of beer and finger-smudged glasses of whiskey. And it's filled with banter and earthy people. The men are big, ugly and burly and so are the women. That's written as two different sentences. There may be one attractive sort behind the bar and another may be drinking a pint and playing dominoes with an ancient man in the corner. But generally everyone are like, you know, grotesque. Everyone inside gives the appearance of rustic outdoor laborers and farmhands and, and sort of the earth types. And they're not grotesque. That was unfair. Lots of hairy and wide forearms, though, because it's the 70s and uh, dirty fingernails, I've written. Rolled up sleeves and flat caps and the sheen of gr and grime of hard labour and harder drinking. As we move towards the back of the pub, there's less merriment, more steely, stony faces. Now, 75, really, it's a hot potato more than ever. None, you know, it's, it's a criminal... Acti is criminal activity happening in deep Ireland, but no, no, nothing is mentioned. You know, it's, it's really stayed away from any any potentially trouble some you know areas but you know it probably caused a stir at the time upon release um here the only thing more calloused than the hands are the looks in the eyes now the door to the pub opens and into this scene enters a man in a well-cut blue suit immaculate eyes immediately turn to the stranger in this tight community his head is still for the moment cropped out of frame as he stands in the entrance uh, raising like a uh, you know, lights a cigar you know and lowers the cigar now it's lit and stuff um and is you know and he raises his arms enough now to be allowed himself to be patted down by two of the large ruddy and powerful looking men who are standing by the door uh, and he's found to be armless and so eyes uh, are all turned it's pure you know i mean obviously american wealth comes to mind everyone's looking at him and you know everything's stopped um and we still don't see his face, but he enters the pub proper and, you know, and um, expressions have frozen and stunned disbelief as open mouth faces with this immaculate figure, like crossing the pub between tables and through the clusters towards the bar. Uh, everyone just watching or sneering in open hostility. Uh, he reaches the bar and those huddled there sort of shuffle aside and we reveal Bond. And uh, the atmosphere is not that dissimilar to the Finish of Soul bar in Live and Let Die. But uh, you know, deep. I thought kind of like like uh, a slaughtered lamb type thing. But he has been in England uh, a fair old amount, uh, so I thought, yeah, this this would be best of both worlds. So, um, so he's insanely out of his comfort zone, but he's being pure more, um, and he smiles at the bar wench. Uh, and but the landlord then steps and you know blocks the view. A huge and scowling man, um, and he's appraising Bond, and Bond turns uh, the smile then to the landlord. He's like, good evening, pint of bitter, please. And he's given a pint and he takes a sip and seems to appreciate it. And then Bond is like, I, I believe I have a reservation under Dutton. I've given him the name Dutton because of Simon Dutton, who played the saint in that short-lived early 90s uh, saint series. So there you go. 
The man at the bar next to Bond looks confused. He's like, reservation? Uh, but the barkeep nods and beckons and, and with his head and leads Bond further into the back of the room. Um, and, you know, at the back of the room, there's like a little table and even motlier crew gathered around this little table uh, all hunched together. Um, and they they all watch this smooth Englishman with contempt but allow him to sit at the table with them. And they've been expecting him, apparently. But Bond as Dutton sits and talks with like six or seven of these really sweaty, bearded, large Irish men. We're all like now crunched in around him. So he's all sort of wedged in behind him, behind them or like between them. And he faces the leader across the table, uh, but others immediately sit and squeeze in and and stuff. And Bond looks slightly uncomfortable as he's wedged between the gaggle. Um, And there's also just like the whole pub is still more or less silent, you know, sort of a low murmur. And loads of people are still like staring openly. Um, And now there's like immediately and very quick talk of product, merchandise, shipments. And it's clear this Dutton is looking to buy a large quantity of like, I don't know, guns or contraband of some sort. Um, And he seems to be going well. And he speaks to the leader of the group, a shaggy haired man with tiny black eyes and a nose like a corroded brick. Um, And then one of his subordinates shuffles over and whispers into the leader's ear, who looks at Bond and then whispers back to his man who nods and darts off. And Bond's eyes kind of narrow a tad, not liking this, but he plows on with his deal. And the leader's like, and no funny business. If you thought you were in a safe in this public house, you're sure to learn that there's not much public about anything here. And yeah, and Bond is like, yes, I'm aware of the special circumstances of this charming establishment. And we very quickly learn that uh, this pub is the main HQ of this gun-toting, gun-running or whatever running outfit. And the leader tells Bond not to get too chummy as most of the men drinking are on the payroll and more besides. And Bond is like, says like he's heard a great deal about this place. But what he's heard, the pub is the least of it, that this entire community is in on it. And that the entire village is a front for some sort of huge operation set up by a mysterious benefactor. And, you know, that's flawless exposition. Uh, Bond gently attempts to like wheedle some info. Um, and he appears genuine and takes another appreciate, appreciative sip of beer and, you know, puffs on his cigar. And he's playing the part as, like, friendly and open, you know. Um, and so as the lackey returns, he whispers something back to the leader. Uh, and then uh, one of the goons who squeezed right next to Bond says, you don't need to know all this, so stop asking your questions because you're not getting any answers. And Bond's like, oh, I'm just paying a compliment. Trust me, you'll have no trouble from me. And, um, and then the leader's like, oh, I know we won't. In our experience, one dead copper's much the same as another. Isn't that right, lads? And everyone's like, Rrr. and Bond still acts casual, all eyes turn on him, and you know, and they're all starting to go hostile and even gleeful. Um, blood is up. Um, and the leader nods across the table to a lackey, who in turn nods to one of the other men posted at the door, who then turns a deadbolt and pulls one of those large wooden beams in place, sealing them all in tight. And the entire patronage of the pub now turn and stand, and everyone is now like surrounding Bond with like intent. Uh, every man and woman holding a knife or a gun or a pipe or a bit of jagged metal. Um, and so Bond sits at the table at the back of the club, still totally covered by everyone. In front of him are five large men, including this leader. Um, the barmaid ushers two extremely old ladies uh, and maybe the, the other girl like out behind the bar and away. Uh, and then that door closes and locks. 
and the leader says to you know his troop, uh, "Who wants to kill him first? Uh, there are some dark chuckles and some darker looks, and Bond still sits a moment, then allow, then you know downs his pint with a kind of a right, um, and he puts it down on the table with a ah, and the leader is like, "You want to be using that uh, glass as a weapon, then, Mister Policeman?" Uh, oh, I almost slipped into something there. And Bond glances to his right and across the room and sees a tankard swigging man, you know, um, from this big old metal tankard. And then Bond glances to his left and nearby a toothless cretin holding a large rusty looking knife. And the large man with uh, a, a large man with a large orange beard pulls out a revolver and aims it uh, over the table at Bond. He cocks back the hammer with his fingertips. Bond slides the glass carefully over the table towards the centre in the leader's direction in an apparent surrender, and the toothless man with the knife he like smiles pitilessly, and Bond's hand retracts from the glass and rests on his watch, which he then activates, and the watch face symbols turn from white to red, and we immediately see that this is the watch from Live and Let Die. It's doing the classic third part of a trilogy. It's bringing stuff back. Spoiler, though, this, is, I think, is the only gadget in the whole film and it's only used in the frequent. Uh, Bond raises his wrist and angles the watch uh, uh, as the magnet switches on. Then, as if casting a fishing line, Bond flicks his wrist across the room. The metal tankard is wrenched from its owner's grasp and flies across the room straight at Bond, who deactivates the magnet with a kind of a flick of his wrist so that the tankard shoots straight past him into the face of the orange-bearded goon with the knife and the gun and stuff, who's right in front of him, who cries out at the shattering impact. Everyone is stunned for like a, a solid beat, uh, except Bond, who snatches the gun from like the, the, the big orange man, and then while spinning, reactivating the watch, which pulls the rusty knife from his grasp of the toothless person, and then Bond just shoots the person closest to him. The, like the gun, like, Jedi's into his hand and he shoots him. Um, the knife, meanwhile, is still spinning end on end and then attaches itself to the watch. Like, dying. Uh, Bond then arcs his arm down in a stabbing motion so that the knife, still attached to his wrist, smashes down on the leg of the goon on, on the other side of him. It's beneath the table surface so we don't see the knife go in and it's pretty you know, obvious what's going on. Um, and he was just about to, you know, he's just starting to get up next to him and this big knife goes through his leg. The man shrieks as Bond then retracts the knife from the, uh, from the thigh and then in the same moves flicks out his arm again, deactivating the watch as his arm extends so that the knife then flies off his wrist and straight into the uh, informant lackey across the table who is in the process of aiming his own gun. The knife shoots straight and true like an arrow uh, if this was directed by Sam Raimi, you know, it would be like from the point of view of the blade, sideways. And the lackey catches it in the chest. He cries out and lets off a shot, which smashes all the bottles above the bartender's head, causing all the alcohol to rain down. A weedy man, very close to Bond, raises his gun, pulls back the hammer and fires. Bond sees all this and reacts like lightning. He holds up the watch as the weedy man fires. The man immediately next to Bond is then hit in the middle by the bullet. Now, this is a reference to Live and Let Die, where Bond says, Q said, like, uh, it could even deflect the cause of a bullet at close range, so, or so Q claims. And he never does that in the film. So now I'm bringing it back. And yes, at close range does deflect the cause of a bullet, and it goes into the dude next to him. Bond grabs the weedy man, who can't believe his eyes, and he snatches the rusty revolver from him and smashes the man face down into his own empty pint glass, which is still sitting on the table. And now it's a free-for-all. Everyone's gone hog-wild after this initial burst of violence from Bond. 
on his feet, Bond punches, shoots, uses his opponent's large number in these cramped conditions to his advantage, pushing them all back on top of each other, uh, making a dam of knocked out dudes. He punches one man full in the face, making his head snap back so that the back of his head cracks into the face of the man behind him. Uh, both men you know, all go down, everyone else is clambering over them. Bond pushes them back into the, each other, uh, using their own numbers as a human shield as he smacks and hits and smashes and knees in close quarters. Um, you know, it's all, you just see basically like a cartoon where it's just like arms and legs flying up. You don't see any you know, actual impact. Um, more bullets have been fired and more glasses have been smashed. A skiddy man with a moustache and a cigarette hanging from his lips tries to gouge Bond with a broken bottle. Bond performs the Moore Punch. Now, the Roger Moore Punch, he never actually did as James Bond, but he does it in everything else I've ever seen James Bond in, which is when he grabs the chin of the man in front of him and then with his other hand punches him you know, uh, in the face. And he does it all the time. And so this, he does it. But there's a twist. Bond performs the Moore Punch on this dude, but instead of cupping the guy's chin, he actually uh, just takes the cigarette out of his uh, mouth and then punches him. Um, so then he, um, and it's all like sort of like daintily with his finger and thumb before he clocks him. Uh, just as the barkeep brings up a, a shotgun from behind the bar, Bond turns, flicks the cigarette, it flies end over end behind the bar, which then catches fire, and the barkeep's like, ah, and fires and it hits someone else. Um, very close quarters fight continues. Bond grabs the wrist of uh, a large knife carrier and thrusts this into the man next to him, uh, and then he, um, he pulls someone else in front of him and uses him as a human shield. And then ultimately Bond grabs a table and then rams it against a, a window, climbs up it and just jumps straight out, landing, uh, landing below um, outside this pub in some wet grass. Bond is outside the pub and there's half an instant to get his bearings when more goons descend, shoots to and runs around the side of the pub next to a tiny lane. Uh, the pub side door bursts open, smoke pouring out of it now followed by three more men. At the same moment, two more come round the corner, each holding a double barrel shotgun. Uh, the one on the right takes aim. Bond shoots him, making him spin and fire both barrels into his friend, who gets blown out of frame. Bond punches the nearest goon, then stoops and spins and rises in one small, in one smooth move, coming up with, a, with the fallen shotgun, which he then fires at the two who have just emerged from the pub. The blast catches them both, who are blown out of shot. Then, from the still-open doorway, another man runs out, screaming with hate and malice, carrying a huge meat cleaver. Bond doesn't hesitate. Instead, he turns, using the handle of the empty shotgun to cleave upwards, connecting with the man's raised head, hand, cleanly knocking the cleaver from his grasp. The man has two seconds, first to look at the cleaver that spins up and away, then down at Bond, who is standing right in front of him. Bond kicks him right in the centre, sending him flying backwards the way he came into the pub with the flames licking at the door frame and the smoke and the orange light. And the man screams as he flies back, uh, presumably into the flames, um, into the raging inferno, no less. And the door, for no reason at all, just then slams shut on him for good measure. Uh, Bond drops the shotgun, picks up a pistol. Uh, he races from the pub as more uh, men are spilling out and more people are coming all over the place. Races up the narrow lane. Um, behind, uh, um, the Bond flees through the sleepy village, ducking and diving around uh, winding country lanes and between houses and so forth. Then uh, doors from all the tiny houses. He's sort of like surrounded just like for a second by peace and quiet. 
and he's sleeping in little cottages and stuff, and there's a greengrocers and stuff. And he's like, ah. And then suddenly all the doors open and all the lights turn on from the shops from the post office and quote-unquote locals come out, some in dressing gowns. Now, this gets a little bit like, you know, John Steed Avengers, but I'm standing by it, and, and it does have a logic of its own behind it. Um, but all these people are coming out, and Bond raises a hand and addresses them. He's like, this isn't your fight. And then they all bring out automatic weapons. And Bond is like, all right. And they open fire, and Bond has nowhere to go except charge at the nearest tiny cottage on his right and just leap in through the window, smashing through it, narrowly avoiding the hail of bullets. Inside, he smashes into the lounge, crashing through a little table and landing in front of the couch. Uh, dazed, he looks up and sees an ancient old lady sitting on the couch before him, knitting, looking down at him, expressionless. She, uh, she's knitting, she apparently was watching TV, and, and now she's just looking down at Bond. Bond looks up at her and tries to smile charmingly. And then he, he starts to try and heave himself up, uh, holding out his hands to her, showing that he is harmless. The old lady drops her knitting and pulls out a, a, a huge machine gun from behind the cushions. Bond's smile freezes. It's a Goldfinger-type moment. At the same time, many of the brutish men from outside now rush into the room. Just as the old lady raises the huge gun towards Bond, Bond, still half up, grabs the underside of the sofa and hauls it up as he rushes to his feet, upending it and sending the old woman onto her back as the couch tips. He's still totally unharmed, her feet now sticking straight up. But as she flips back, she fires the gun. So the, the bullets like, go right up the wall as she tips back. And the men, of course, all instinctively turn to rush back out or to throw themselves to the floor as bullets strafe the room up the wall, cutting and sparking and flaming the TV clean in half. And then through the framed photos and pictures on the wall, which are often very old and fainted and faded and black and white. One is like a smiling bride and a scowling groom outside a church. And another shows an ugly baby. And the third is a portrait of James Joyce. And they all get like sprayed with bullets and smash apart. Which Then the bullets go into the ceiling and like go right across the top of the ceiling into the light fixture, which then explodes and falls down and plaster rains down as the gun clicks empty. Uh, as the uh, everyone now is just totally covered in like powder. Bond races back up, leaps straight back through the window uh, whence he entered. Um, just as the, like, the upstairs of the house then like, comes crashing down. Again, totally avoiding the old lady who still just sits dazed, um, sitting amongst the rubble on the sitting room around this demolished house. Back outside, Bond picks himself up just in time to see reinforcements descend. Down the lane, a speeding motorbike and sidecar, the latter manned by a grinning machine gun-toting passenger. Cunning from a right angle is another van, more goons leaning from the windows inside. The man in the sidecar fires for, uh, his machine gun. Bond jumps over and dives down behind one of the uh, ancient village walls, which breaks apart under the heavy fire. Uh, the van rolls up, the man um, leaning from the passenger door, taking careful aim at the spot where Bond disappeared. And Bond pops up further along the wall, kind of like a splatter rat, um, and shoots the driver of the van, sending it, uh, the van going straight into the motorbike, both vehicles going straight into the, the side of a wall. Uh, of actually the graveyard, which is a nice touch. Uh, the screaming sidecar occupy, uh, occupant collides into the side of the van, both spinning into the wall, crushing the remains of the sidecar and presumably occupant against the stones. The van crashes straight through and then flips and uh, lands on its side, flames starting to lick the underside. 
there's a beat of stillness and Bonnie's just like looking at this kind of like a bit dazed at this like damage in front of him. Um, but then he's like, you know, he sort of looks around with a bit of satisfaction. Then a humming in the air, Bond squints and reacts to the sound just as a spotlight snaps on from above and a helicopter descends from the night sky. Two occupants, a pilot and a gunner, the gunner manning a mounted M2 Browning used in US military since 1933, remaining the largest machine gun in the world. And Jimmy, you'll know I repeated that because I sent you the screen grab. Uh, Bond leaps aside just as the copter opens fire, strafing the lane, churning up the, uh, the dirt road and the uh, ancient country wall and surrounding buildings and foliage. Bond runs full tilt around the back of the vicarage, which is all apart, uh, which kind of all but blows apart under the concentrated fire. The copter swoops over and circles around and zoops straight back. Bond flees his shattered cover, and it's very from Russia with love with the copter coming down. Uh, you might say there's a bit of uh, Mission Impossible 6, or yes, 6, I think, 7, um, Dead Reckoning coming up because there's a hook under the helicopter on a little wire, but I've seen that in lots of things, so, you know, take that what you will. I mean, Dark Man for one. Um, up cliffhanger on another. On the copter's underside, then, this long steel cable is wound up, connected to a large metal hook, but, like, as the copter is, like, shaking and firing under, you know, this massive gunfire, it shakes it and the, the hook comes down a bit, so it's sort of, like, you know, it dips low, and actually Bond has to duck because uh, it whizzes over like a, a pendulum of death. Uh, Bond rolls and ducks behind the upended crushed van lying now on his front. The van is flaming away. Uh, Bond uh, and the copter is circling around again. And in the distance, more vehicles are speeding nearer. The Bond's right is the truck. Uh, to his left, uh, slightly further up the lane is an old church, the, the destroyed vicarage. Um, and um, closest is, is the remains of the vicarage. Face down in the dirt, Bond next to the cab of the van. Inside, the man in the passenger uh, of, of the van is hanging sideways from his seatbelt, very dazed, but he kind of looks at Bond, and Bond sort of gives him the more double take because they're like one foot apart from each other's faces. Um, and then he reaches up and takes the guy's machine gun from his stunned hand, and the copter swings down, firing lots of high-tech weaponry. Bond fires back, bit of a standoff. Um, but Bond emerges, looking nails. Everyone ducks and covers from all the people who are descending in the vehicles. Bond stoops and grabs the motorbike, kicking off the remains of the sidecar. He gets on. Everyone's getting closer. He kicks once. It doesn't start. He kicks twice. It doesn't start. He kicks three times. doesn't start. He, like, throws it to one side. He's like, fuck. He looks over. <clears throat> Next to the vicarage is the uh, vicar's bike with a basket on the front. Bond doesn't even fucking hesitate. And he runs over to that bike. And he gets on it. Just as the copter goes down, fires up the lane. This time the bullets heat the truck. The dude is still hanging in there. He's like, ah, truck blows up. With a, like a real hero shot of Bond riding away from the explosion. But he's on a fucking bike. As he rides away to Vicarage, the vicar runs out with a gun of his own. Furious, not so much about the Vicarage, it seems, but the bike being stolen, starts firing his gun after Bond. Bond handles the bike fucking expertly. Now, Bond rides a bike, like, for leisure in Never Say Never Again, but I've never seen him on a bike otherwise, so I thought that would be interesting. Um, so he's riding around like a fucking BMX bandit. Bullets are smashing everywhere. Um, he's on his rickety bike. Um, he, he shoots around the, uh, the church in a tight circle, momentarily losing the, the, cop, the, the, the chopper. Um, the chopper swings and follows. The wire unspooling more, so, you know, that, that hook is still going as... 
Bond is like weaving the bike nimbly between uh, the graves of the graveyard and the monuments and stuff. And the hook catching up with him is smashing loads of the tops of the gravestones and things as he goes through. Um, pedals pass now um, to circle the church a few times and so on. Well, it's missing Bond and all that. Um, he passes one small cottage and leans over, stooping, and snatches up an empty milk bottle from outside a front door. He writes himself, goes round the corner, there's a dude there with a gun, and he smashes the bottle immediately into his face. Um, many of the drinkers uh, are running around, like, still, and lots of more people are spilling out from the village with guns. Um, Bond shoots back, you know, as they shoot at him. One, a special uh, maniac, runs forward, firing his gun, shouting, Die, English, die! Bond is right on top of him when he squeezes the front brakes of the bike, causing the, the bike to spin, the front wheel planted, but the back wheel, like, turning, um, fishtailing. And the villager is too slow to react as the wheel fishtails right into his face, uh, making him fly back. And Bond, then the wheel just lands slightly bent with a small bop on the ground. And Bond looks at the fallen dude and says, spoke too soon. And he hits the pedal and he, he pedals off. The um, the gunner and the copter reloads and is still chasing Bond through the village. Um, perhaps the, book, the hook swings at him, but he dodges and he gets someone else in the face. Um, Bond smashes out, leaves the village behind him now, which is smoking and flaming in the background. And he goes through the little woods and he goes through the little uh, trees and things and then across a meadow. And the copter is flying very low. The, the you know, it's just very dark. It's like Lost Boys. Very, you know, he's, he's on the bike, and the spotlight is trying to pick him up. Um, but then, just coming up in front of him is the edge of the cliff, and a huge tree. So Bond, you know, his eyes go wide, and he skids, and the tree, um, you know, sort of crashes into him a bit, but stops his fall, and the bike, you know, just slides right off the edge of the cliff. So now Bond, it's very dark. The uh, the copter is getting closer. Um, and he stands up on the edge just as the spotlight's getting there. Um, next, you know, he's there on the edge next to this ancient dead tree trunk um, towering above him. The copter is flying low so as to see Bond in the dark. It's getting closer and closer, and the gunner pulls back the hammer and is grinning. And on the cliff edge, Bond, looking like fucking James Bond, is picked up in the spotlight, lit up for all to see as the copter races right at him. Pure hero shot. Bond doesn't move, concentrating, waiting, waiting, waiting. Uh, and then he activates his watch and the copter judders in flight as the hook is pulled hard and spooling the cable super fast as it shoots down, hitting the ground, digging deeply into the earth, still being pulled by the chopper, so making like a, a sharp furrow across the field. The copter judders enough for the bullets to veer on either side of Bond and miss him as it passes overhead. The cable then flies past Bond's head. Maybe he just like leans back and just goes past him and it embeds itself into the side of the base of the tree going really deep so now we've got the copter circling around still aiming to fire inside the helicopter the gunner has had enough and he's taking careful aim as they fly back over the sea towards the edge of the cliff um he's coming in on bond the, the pilot is coming in full speed the pilot turns to the gunner and says for god's sake this time make it count and the gunner is like oh i got him i got him and he squints through his sights, and on the cliff, Bond turns towards the oncoming chopper, and he takes out his remaining gun, and it's uh, battered, and it's the rusty one he stole from that dude in the pub. And he opens it as like one bullet, and he snaps the wheel shut, 
and it gets closer and closer and closer, and the gunner grins and the pilot smirks and Bond aims and fires and the cockpit's ple uh, plexiglass spider webs as the pilot is hit in the shoulder and the pilot jerks and the copter banks hard left and the gunner pulls the trigger but the bullets again veer off just missing Bond and then the wire goes taut and the hook digs deeper still into the base of the oak and the splintering wood but it still holds fast and the copter lurches hard again as the wire and tree anchor it, causing it to continue to bank left, the pilot unable to correct the momentum of the machine. With the wire lashed to the tree and banking continuously to the left, the copter flies round and round and round the massive tree at full speed, the wire making it turn, winding faster and faster like a steel maypole ribbon, making the copter go uh, faster in ever-decreasing circles. Bond is backing away, watching with his head, you know, following the chopper, going like, woo, woo, round and round. And the pilot and gunner scream as the copter flies in the tightest circle and then explodes into the side of the tree trunk. And then the tree trunk topples with the remains of it. They all fall off the cliff into the sea and are instantly covered by the waves. Um, so Bond moves away from all of that and just lets that settle. He turns from the cliff edge and stands in the wind, looking a lot like James Bond. Ahead, he sees more headlights coming as vehicles are fast approaching from the distance. The lead of these vehicles is quite a bit ahead and it screeches to a halt in front of Bond who braces to flee. And, but the yellow-haired woman who dropped him off at the beginning leans out and smiles up at Bond and she says, you're a hard agent to stay on top of, Commander Bond. And Bond getting into the car. Hard work, I agree, but usually worth it. And he slams the door and the car peels off into the night as the village burns and the others fall behind lost in the darkness. And so then we have the credit sequence. Uh, it took a lot to read that it would take. That would be very quick on screen, I swear to God. Just before you get to your own, just give me one second, <clears throat> young man, because, you know, like, so the choreography alone there, Sheps, and so many, like, I'm imagining for your eyes only, so I know he's a lot younger here, but, like, that kind of nail sure. shot on the side of a cliff. I can really visualise that at the end with the chopper and whatnot. See him doing the for your eyes only pose, but um, looking like Man with a Golden Gun. Yes, exactly. And then just him having a pint of bitter and just all of that. I just see more framed with all of the locals with noses right. broken bricks or whatnot and all that stuff. But it really makes me very happy, Shappy. That was that was Thanks, wonderful. Bro. That was wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Lots well, of flying weapons and flying vehicles and yes yeah. that's the last time the watch is used and again it wasn't a conscious choice but there weren't any gadgets and i didn't want to you know shoehorn them in so yes yes indeed um all right so the opening credits the song it's not rolling stones iggy pop was considered apparently and much like johnny cash in real life did a version which then wasn't picked up for years later you can listen to iggy pop's discarded bond theme on youtube um but it's not Iggy Pop, it's David Bowie, who's another person um, you know, who could have, should have done a Bond theme. I believe he was offered the role of Max Zorin, so if he had have said yes, well, he could have done it, maybe he would have done the music for that. Um, so anyway, David Bowie does the song, the, the music, the melody, I kind of hear windmills of my mind, but I'm sure John Barry would sort it out. The title of the film is A Murder of Secrets. So take that as you will. Um, I, I said a while ago it was pretentious, and it, it bloody is. Um, so 
this is um, also, it, it occurs to me actually, this is the third part of this trilogy. And so I wanted to keep the theme in that you have live and let die, which is male, and then you've got female, and now it's male again. So I just want to keep that. Um, so so it's, a, it's a male singer just for the sort of pattern. Um, a murder of secrets plays over the credits. The credits show a lot of Cold War, ancient spycraft imagery, and also lots of smoke and mirrors motif. I think the poster is actually kind of got a smoke and mirrors thing with the title half reflected and 007 kind of bending in a mirror reflection type thing. Um, there's a lot of that. By the way, my, my calendar is, um, uh, I I've got my Bond calendar, turned it over a few days ago for the beginning of July, and it's bloody live and let die. So it's kismet, man. Um, so we have uh, we have the song plays, yes, um, smoke and mirrors, codes on destructible paper going up in flames, microfilms hidden in elaborate patterns, chessboard and moving pieces is a massive motif going on here, a map of the world moving as the land masses were like parts of a mammoth jigsaw puzzle fitting together, lots of Russian doll motifs, secrets and lies and shadows and fog and boobies. And I've got a little bit of Bowie, um, and again, this isn't going to be the, the, the melody, but imagined bouquets of promise stitched in ancient chain, a half-remembered heartbreak, just lost and forgotten pain. The soldiers are for turning, the masters are all spent, like assassins turning deadly from violence and intent. A shadow of a chess move in this screaming parade, the doomed sounds of running footsteps in this broken-down charade, like the memories of failure, a what with acid rain, the torture of lost fortune and the touch of forgotten pain. Death follows lies just as murder follows truth. Secrets are a weapon covering the proof. A murder of secrets forgotten in the dark, and left alone to fester a travesty so stark. When the currency of living is harboring of lies, it follows you forever, corrupting from inside. The orchestra's conductor, the eyes behind the mask, moving all the pieces, shrouding them in dark. Like the mad composer with his symphony of lies, the music will distract you while he kills you from inside. Death from above into depths of maddened eyes, a flock of screaming whispers, a murder of secrets, Hate from deep inside, and then directed by uh, Guy Hamilton Fucking comes out. Hell, Ben Shepherd, <laughs> Jesus Christ! When, when, when the Bowie comes out, I mean, Guy I recommend anyone who didn't. Yeah. Shoulders to stand on, but that was that was a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful homage to the man and a great theme. Well, I certainly recommend him. anyone check out the Labyrinth podcast if you like that. Uh, you're bloody, <laughs> you won't get enough of that. Um, thank you, Jimmy. <laughs> Um, all right, so we have Fade Up. London. Bond arrives and has a bit of banter with Moneypenny. Moneypenny's like, James, how was your trip? Any luck of the Irish? Not exactly, Moneypenny. Just spilled beer and crimson on clover. And he enters, and that's all I've got for the exchange. I fucking loved your whole thing with the hat and the um, the oh, so silly. Amazing. Yeah. Yep. Um, so there you are. I don't really have M returning. There were lots of opportunities where he could in this film. But again, this is more or less, I think, it. We hear about him, but it's not one of those films where M, where, where M is in it all that much. Um, 
So M, uh, he enters M's office for the debrief. Uh, with M is Frederick Gray, the Minister of Defence, and he's in Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker and The Always Only and, and possibly more. Um, and we learn about this village. Now, there's a lot about this village, which is a big part of this. And I'm aware that Patrick McGowan is the villain, and no one will believe me, but I suddenly realised really late into this that Patrick McGowan is controlling, quote-unquote, villages with his fake community. And it's like, oh, well, it's the prisoner. But I swear it came from totally different directions. Very strange. So anyway, we learn more about this village from Ireland. And M is like, yes, it's just as we feared. Fabricated communities. Bond's like, yes, sir. And Freddie, the Ministry of Defence, is like, an intelligence output posing as a village this close to home? Incredible. Bond's, but not unheard of, Minister. The Russians tried something similar with American towns, and M cutting him off. Yes, but, and Bond's a bit peeved. Yes, but this wasn't the Russians, was it? Um, no, sir. And M's, in the meantime, who knows how many of these hidden installations are out there? Families moved in together, a network of criminals, entire regions commandeered. Bond, leaving us not with a village as such, more a fully functioning military installation, complete with rustic setting and its own post office. Shreddy, but remaining a basic factory for weapons, armament, manufacturing, and a base camp for the enemy, right under our noses. Now, so we learn that Bond's cover was blown in the pub due to a major leak and a lot of top agents have been lured into traps all simultaneously, all on the same night. But that's not the worst part. It's not just British or American agents, but Russian, Chinese, Japanese, Israeli. A lot of agents have been killed, all and missions have been exposed, all on the same night. Uh, Freddy is like, and until we know who is behind this, no agent is safe. Anyone's cover could be blown, just as yours was. Uh, Bond hesitant. There is one possibility that springs to mind, sir. And M, steely-eyed, not convinced. You mean fanning? And Bond, large-scale subterfuge with a theatrical flair. It does have his touch, sir. And now we learn you know, more about fanning, who I talked about earlier, uh, Patrick McGowan. And, and M is like, he's not convinced by Bond's uh, suspicions, but he, of course, trusts Bond enough to let him dig a little bit deeper warns him not to let personal feelings cloud his judgment. M says, if Fanning is in some way behind this, I want you operating as a professional, 007, not a scalp hunter. I quite agree, sir. We learn they are referring, of course, to this dude. Um, so um, basically, they, they, they have a lead. And I don't know, I could say, oh, something turned up from a radio wave picked up from the village and it went to this other location. So let's say that. So... M sends Bond to this location to see what he can turn up uh, and if he can find a corroboration for his theory that Sebastian Fanning is in some way involved because it reeks of Fanning, according to Bond. So now Bond is sent to Alaska to follow up his hunch. There he meets his liaison. It's Felix Leiter of the CIA and Hedison's back, again, third part of the trilogy, bringing back Felix from Live and Let Die. Um... So that's nice. Felix wasn't in any of the other malls. And then he popped up as Jack's dad from Lost in Living, Living Daylights. And then he Hedison popped up again in License to Kill. Very strange. So anyway, he's back and he's bloody loving it. Uh, so him and so Elytra and Bond have some quick pants. And then it's to the plant. Um, so again, Alaska. I don't think Bond's been to Alaska. So Felix is like, welcome to Alaska, James. I hope you brought your thermals. It gets pretty brisk. 
and Bond. Thank you, Felix. I always try to remain brisk as is needed. Sure, just remember, it's brisk, not frisky. Don't worry, Felix. I'm sure I can manage both. Now, that's what Langley's worried about. And, you know, that sort of nice, friendly shit goes on. Uh, Felix takes Bond into the middle of nowhere where there are forests and vast lakes and rivers uh, and a massive paper mill and factory on the water's edge and floating before this on the lake are hundreds and hundreds of those giant tree trunks stored while waiting to be cut and sawed and mashed and pulped inside and then flattened out into paper. Felix, now remember, James, you're still on US soil. So get in, see what you can find and get out. Uncle Sam is not, in, is not interested in funding another of your demolition derbies. I'll try and keep that in mind. Bond breaks in, looking for information. He needs to prove the identity of whoever is behind the leaks at the village, etc. He moves with stealth, slinking about, um, they're, you know, avoiding workers and stuff. He gets into the main office, which is fairly small, very basic. You know, it's like a, not a grand place at all. It's large, but everything's a bit shitty. So a fairly small main office. Um, you know, it looks like your basic factory foreman's office. It's got a desk and stuff pinned to the wall and stuff. Uh, four white walls. Bond wastes no time. He starts looking around and shit. Um, and, and he can't find anything. And then he, he considers and he goes over to the water cooler and examines it and upends the bottle and fiddles about with the base. There's a click. And then he finds a little hidey hole, which is revealed. And inside is some petty cash, a bar of gold, several files. Um, so Bond removes uh, the latter, opens them up on the desk, and the contents appear to be printed in some sort of alphabet that, judging from Bond's expression, he's unfamiliar with. So now Bond takes out his 007 spy camera, as seen in Moonraker. I'm doing a you, Jimmy, because I'm reaching into the future and bringing something back. But, you know, it's a spy camera no matter what, but I'm going to say it's for 007 spy camera from, from Moonraker. And Bond starts snapping away, moving through the pages quickly. All is quiet, uh, but from, from faint machinery sounds and the click of the camera. Bond's almost done when he stops and frowns. He slowly becomes aware of a strange sound, which is slowly increasing in volume, its source unclear. Bond stays still and concentrates. You know that puzzled look where, Bond, where more is a little bit uneasy? It's that. We hear the sound clearer now. It sounds like steady, laboured breathing, coming out of like a raspy wheeze. Uh, it starts faint, but grows in volume. Bond's eyes quickly scan the room, looking for the source. Then Bond turns back to the file on the desk, when all four walls of the office explode in a shower of plaster dust, revealing the entire construct was made of very thin bolster wood and papier-mâché. And goons swarm in, converging on Bond from all sides. It's a trap! The goons all have semi-automatic weapons, and they surround Bond with menace, and he has no choice but to raise his hands and surrender. Also revealed is the source of the wheezing, as a tall, gaunt man with black hair, wide shoulders, a hooked nose, impossibly pale green eyes, and the scar of half a lobotomy visible on his scalp, which also shows the hairline receding only half, uh, unnaturally. This is Captain Wheeze, because he wheezes, you see. His real name is Captain Ivanovich Mestrovich, left uh, with a breathing deficiency due to blood bubbles in his lungs during the war getting the bends after his submarine was torpedoed. Now he barely speaks, if at all he just wheezes. But he's huge and he's the guy who I see being the, the henchman from Condor Man. So there you go. And he's not actually 
big and bulky huge. He's tall, but he's gangly a little bit, but he's, you know, he's, he's hardcore. Um, he's been active working as goon extraordinaire, thought to be freelance, but it seems he has a master after all. Bond achieves a veneer of a calm and addresses Captain Weeds. And Weeds says, as, uh, sounds like you want to get something off your chest. Weeze covers Bond, indicating with uh, wheezing with satisfaction as the goons frisk him, removing his gun and the camera. He holds um, this in his hand, showing it to Weeze, who seems uninterested in anything but Bond. Uh, Weeze coxes um, his head, indicating two more goons roughly manhandle Bond towards what used to be the door and back out to the factory floor. As Bond begins to be marched away, his hands still up we see he is uncharacteristically wearing a ring on the third finger of his right hand. Ah, it is one more gadget. There you go. Uh, this is now touched and rotated with the thumb, and then the smallest high-pitched whine starts, rising even more in pitch, like it's me, so it's nearly inaudible. Weeze frowns at this, and then the goon who took the camera now holds up the camera, the spy camera in front of him and frowns at it as the high-pitched wine is obviously coming from this. And he looks at his hand and then it all explodes. And the ceiling falls in, covering Weeze and several others. Um, and two more goons are blown out through the hole where the walls used to be, falling the three floors to the hard ground below. Bond takes this moment to elbow the guard in the ribs and then swivel and punch the other guard uh, who spins and goes down. Bond runs. Goons give chase through the paper mill. Um, um, back in the office, the ceiling rubble shifts and falls away as Weeze stands up, caked in plaster and fury, and he wheezes angrily as he tears through the, uh, the upper level of the factory as Bond um, continues and has a few grapples, grapples and encounters. Uh, Bond is high up, halfway across a gangway, overlooking the factory floor and machinery below when a huge and intimidating goon meets him halfway, looming over Bond, blocking his passage, and he grins down at Bond with unsavory intent. And Bond drops his arms in a kind of, a, oh, well, what's the point in fighting sort of way, which makes a huge goon grin all the more. Then Bond flashes forward and hits him once in the face, immediately knocking the, uh, the goon off the gangway down into the paper pulper below. And the massive goon has time for one half scream and then is enveloped in this whirlpool of sort of like mulch as he's sucked down into the machine, which is mulching up all the paper. And then kind of like a sausage of like wet paper start coming out from the side to be rolled out and flattened and turned into paper. And it's like white sheet, white sheet, white sheet, dripping red sheet. Uh, and looking down from above, Bond says, paper tiger. And he races across the gangway as more goons descend. And uh, now I know that's a bit like Tomorrow Never Dies, but it can't be helped. Um, <laughs> Captain Weeze is leading and coordinating the pursuit. Uh, and Bond races out of the factory with all the goons after him. And he starts running across the massive shifting floating logs. And yes, it's a bit of an inception wannabe. Weeze uh, is proving a real threat, um, cutting off numerous attempts at Bond to evade them all. This all ends Weeze and Bond coming face-to-face -face atop of one of the moving, rolling, and constantly shifting giant floating tree trunks. And Weeze launches himself at Bond, who has his work cut out. Um, Weeze is onto him, plowing into Bond, heavy blows. Bond fends him off, but he's on the back foot. He gets in a few de decent punches, but Weeze is just like a maniac. Um, two more goons catch up, and Bond is now outnumbered. And they sort of, they're trying to raise their guns to fire, but the shifting logs make it impossible. And they don't want to shoot their boss. 
So they rush at Bond to swamp him, and it turns into like this big grappling scrum. Wheeze actually takes a few steps, uh, takes a punch through the face, staggers back a minute, and then at that exact moment, Bond is being overpowered by the two goons who are on top of him, when basically Bond, either it's fluke or Bond kind of pushes, but the weight and momentum allows the gap to open between the logs beneath his feet. And so as the two goons are on him, um, he just like drops straight down into the water, uh, taking the goons with him. Uh, straight down, icy, icy water. Wheeze watches as the logs then slide back over the gap, covering them up. Uh, all three underwater struggling to get to the surface, but they're you know, nightmarishly trapped under the, the massive logs remaining immovable um, above them. Bond punches the first goon in the face. He falls away like a a bubble trail, leaving his mouth as he flies back. Um, A tiny uh, gap opens up above this goon who's just been socked. And he he goes right up to the surface. And he's like, oh, gets lots of breath. And he clambers at the log. But, you know, it's too wide to get a purchase and he can't quite get up. And standing on the log is Captain Wheeze, his boss. And the goon, like, desperately holds up his arm for Wheeze. But Wheeze just looks down at him, doesn't gloat or anything, just looks down like, what? And then the man's like, ah! And then the, the log kind of rolls over him, taking him back down under and then closing up on top of his head again. Um, so he's dead. Uh, meanwhile, Bond manages to get to the surface long enough to take a breath, turns his head to the right just in time to see the front end of a massive log shooting straight at him. Bond's eyes go wide, but he ducks immediately and then the mammoth trunk slides um, over the top of him. And so he's back underwater, and the remaining goon grabs him again. So they fight underwater. The goon punches Bond in the stomach, uh, ridding him of most of his air. Bond is flagging, and the goon is raining blows about him. Looking up now, Bond sees an opening um, above. So and he grabs the goon by the shirt lapels, and then just like with his he, he himself remaining below the surface, pushes the goon up, whose head then crashes up through the surface of the water just in time to see another huge like the end of a log sliding directly at him and the goon's like oh and then from underwater you just see bond release the body as it kind of twitches and again the top of the head is cut off literally but also on the frame so you've just got like the twitching leg and this like body is just sinking down you never get to the point where there's no head but you know it's just been pulverized like this jam basically uh, under this log so Underwater, Bond swims away. He makes it to the end of the log bridge, and while more goons and Captain Wheeze are scanning the water on the far side of the bank, Bond has made it out from under the logs. He breaks the surface with a massive gasp of air, just like Roger Moore always does, and pulls himself out of the water. And then he takes a last look across the factory and the figures standing on the logs in the in the distance. Um, and Bond, Wheeze turns, and they kind of see each other. And they appraise each other over the over the water for a moment, uh, and then Bond turns and maybe he says, "Talk about log jamming." But I don't know. I don't know if that even works. So he leaves. Bond escapes. Um, cut to a remote CIA branch house somewhere in a tiny town near Anchorage. One room, like flashing banks of monitors. It's like a cabin, and Bond is there in a toweling robe and like you know half dried hair fresh from the shower. And Felix is there with his like shirt sleeves rolled up. And again, it's like that scene in Live and Let Die. And they're discussing that there was a trap. And Lighter is like, I see a flare for mindless destruction remains unbeaten. And Bond, like falling off a log. Talk turns to what transpired and you know, how this trap could have been. And Lighter is like, 
I just don't get it, James. No one could have known you'd be there. No one could possibly have predicted it. And yet someone did. Yeah, I know. Don't tell me. Your old mentor. Contemporary? Sure. Uh, so uh, a small reveal. This is uh, we, we now reveal that Bond had managed to switch the film from the camera. So we still got the documents and the one that blew up was empty. And Leiter tells us that the boys at the CIA HQ have analysed the code that Moore took the photos of. It's unlike any code they've ever seen before. With the help of the Codex, which we learned was a gift from the British after, after they had no more use for it. So it's from Russia with love reference. Um, they use the Codex uh, and have managed to decipher a fragment of this uh, code. And it comes through the Telex machine, pure, like, nah, 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 as it's printing it out, like, one line at a time, with the paper being like, chuk, 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 pure 75. Mm -hmm. So as, it, as it's coming in from Langley, and it's, like, printing out, and, and Bond's, like, you know, drinking coffee with a towel around his neck, and they gather around him and Felix around the Telex as it prints out. It's huge. And um, Felix is like, but what they've discovered, it seems to be part of some crazy manifesto. It's coming through now. And it's revealed that Bond's suspicions were correct. It's part of the manifesto has now been decoded. And Felix reads it as it's being printed out. Uh, Change is in the air and death flies with it. My secrets are in flight. And Bond's reciting from memory. And murder carries them on wings of blood. And Felix is like, Fanny. And Bond, Noddy, Sebastian. And so we get to it. To stop Sebastian Fanning, uh, who's going to release all the world's secrets from all the world's governments and cause total global anarchy and all the, uh, everything will crumble because no one will trust governments and all the darkest secrets will all come out. We find out that after he defected, he left a great many secrets and blueprints for future plans in his new home within the Kremlin before he left the Kremlin behind. It's probable that not even the Russians know what they have, as all of Fanning's work was written in this dense code. Um, but Bond is confident the answers they seek are there. So using the information taken from, from the decoded stuff, they work out where they have to go next. Leiter says there's no way America is going to let an Englishman infiltrate the heart of Russia alone, because Russia is where they're going. And Bond is like, I never knew the CIA cared. They just don't want you boys to get all the credit if you actually manage to pull this off. And so Bond and Leiter travel north from Alaska into Russia and to Moscow, to Red Square, to infiltrate the Kremlin. And I don't think Bond has ever been to Moscow, I don't think, in any of the films. Uh, Felix right. is like, uh, ready to be a thief one more time, James? Bond, well, I have always been a fan of a good snatch and grab. Meanwhile, we now cut to a cavernous office, mainly dark and shadowed, illuminated in silver and blue from the moonlight flooding in through these huge bay windows. And through these windows outside, we see mainly night and darkness, but equine shapes move around and noises. And beyond them, a vast swab of landscape, flat and foreboding, stretching away forever. And in front of this vista is a large desk and a chair and a man who's sitting facing the view. And we, so we see the back of his head and shoulders in silhouette and a, and a cigarette smoke from an ashtray on the desk in front of him is causing a thin wisp of smoke to climb lazily in a stream beside him. And this is Sebastian Fanning. And a door opens and the rasping and laboured breath of Captain Wheeze enters a few moments before the man himself. 
and Wheeze stands at a respectful distance to the shrouded man at the desk, and he waits patiently until the man turns in his swivel chair and faces him. We don't see his face, just glimpses like a close-up of his mouth when he's talking, and one eye as it appraises Wheeze with almost mocking humour. And Wheeze wheezes and looks helplessly apologetic. Um, I, I think it's not going to be a total Jaws. I think Wheeze manages to do a bit of a whisper and get out a few words, but not very many at all. And it's always really like, you can't, you can't really hear it. So Wheeze um, looks apologetic, and Sebastian is like, yes, don't tell me. Bond escaped. He's rather good at that, you know. The commander has spent a lifetime's worth of career infiltrating considerably better protected installations than your paper-thin base of operations. And Wheeze, with a lot of effort, gets out, The files! And said, like, If I didn't want Bond to obtain the files, I wouldn't have left them there for him to find. No, Captain, he has them, and I know exactly what he must do and where he must go. Wheeze nods, slightly uncertain, but with deep loyalty in his eyes, and Seb's mouth moves in a parody of a smile. And he says, Don't trouble yourself with thought, Captain. It unbecomes you. Now I know precisely where Bond's path must take him next, and I fear his next logical step must be to find the entrance to something altogether more challenging than a paper mill. First, a fortress of a city, and then a fortress within that city still. And we see Sebastian's eyes once more, alive and dancing in the flickering blue light. And Sebastian says, As always, my old dear comrade Bond will plunge headfirst into whatever situation awaits. And in this case, the situation is of my design, and what lies ahead is his end. And we cut. So in Russia, we make use of Bond not only being behind the Iron Curtain, but deep in enemy territory for the first time during the Cold War. Um, so he uses some real spy craft and intelligence. But that's all it says. Um, iconic imagery has Bond in Red Square in a fur hat, swapping secrets and showing off his perfect Russian. Um, now, they couldn't film a James Bond film in Russia in 1975. But what we have is a lovely set, a bit of Derek Bedding's uh, trick photography. We've got like a, a matte image of like the Kremlin with Bond walking down. It's all very good. The close-up, the background's blurred. It's, it's, it's pretty good. Uh, on these days on a plasma, you can see that the line and how it's a bit fake, but that's okay. Uh, it, it's good. It's not embarrassing. You had me at <laughs> with the hat on. So yeah, well, you know, what else are we doing here? It's good stuff. Um, so now Bond and Lighter, and I, I wasn't going to take Lighter to Russia, um, it was just going to be in Alaska because there's not much sense in him going to Russia. But I was really enjoying Bond and Lighter's like relationship, so I kept him in it a little bit longer. So Bond and Lighter have a mini mission together now, posing as businessmen from Leningrad to meet with an ex-KGB informer turned black market racketeer going by the moniker Mr. Bolshoi, um, Mr. Big. Uh, Bond sounds like he's light on his feet. Alex. Um, so this guy, Bolsoy, claims to be able to get Bond inside the Kremlin's security. Uh, in exchange for US dollars from Leiter, Bolshoi gives them info and promises safe passage out of the city once the mission is complete. Um, so Bond infiltrates the Kremlin. He bluffs the guards, uses forged credentials, info from Bolshoi, 
and keeps his cool in a pressure cooker scene of infiltration of the lion's den. And this is a real Le Carre scene. It's tense as fuck as he's bluffing his way deeper and deeper in. Um, and then he breaks his cover right in the heart of it all and ducks off. There's a Peter Grillen gaining access to a dingy but highly classified file room filled with hundreds and hundreds of cabinets and shelves. And Bond works fast and finds a huge and ancient shape, uh, safe and using very basic equipment and just left, right, ticky, 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 ticky. He breaks for safe, gets in there, gets uh, you know, files, microfilm. So Bond is far from in the clear, however, as he's like exiting this room. It's a very tense scene with the safe cracking, footsteps getting closer and everything and down echoing in the corridor. He gets out of the office just as someone else comes in, but Bond comes face to face with like this steel-rimmed spectacle wearing company man, feminine officer, who's just like walking down the corridor and, they, and he sort of bumps into Bond. And he's got like a shrewd face and sharp eyes. And Bond in Russian says, excuse me, and goes on his way. But the man like starts to walk and then hesitates and frowns and looks back at Bond. And then he's like, where do I know that face? So Bond is walking down the central corridor and there are like soldiers and spies and intelligence officers just milling around. Um, now there might be, um, now this is pre-Spy Who Loved Me. And I believe General Gogo uh, is, is introduced as Spy Who Loved Me. So this next bit doesn't really make sense because if they haven't, if he hasn't been introduced before, but I have a little bit where Bond rounds a corner comes face to face with Gogo, but by sheer luck, Gogo is distracted by bollocking his, one of his underlings and they just sort of pass by Bond and you know, gets away with it. Also, if this was like you, Jimmy, and this was like after Spy You Love Me, there would be a scene where Triple X is just like walking down the, the, the corridor and she spots Bond and like accidentally, quote, collides with some Russian guards, knocking them down and allowing Bond to duck out. But that doesn't happen because this is pre-Spy Who Loved Me. So forget that. Um, others are giving Bond the side-eye, uh, and it looks like Bond's going to get caught as he's walking, trying to stay cool. Um, meanwhile, at his desk, the steel-rimmed company man is now flicking through like, agents' uh, photos uh, and face after face after face, and then Bond's, and then face and face and face, and then the man pauses, flicks back, looks at Bond's file photo, and his eyes go wide and he thumps his fist down onto a large red button, and alarms blare, and troops run, and they're shouting for, um, from everywhere all at once, and Bond goes from, like, you know, casual saunter to, like, stiff back walk to half run, as he knows that his time is about up, and he even looks on the verge of maybe losing his pool just a little bit. Uh, running footsteps and military boots and shouted orders echo all around. With more troops spilling out ahead, Bond zags and bursts through a large and official-looking door, which leads, as it turns out, straight into Gogo's office. And, you know, we don't need to have met Gogo. It's obviously like the, the KGB's M's office. And Bond immediately comes face-to-face -face with the secretary. Uh, Bond keeps his head and tries to bluff it, acting all impatient and blustery, being like, where is the general? And stuff like that. Then he's been waiting to see him for almost an hour. What sort of office is this? Etc. But after a split second of surprise at this unexpected entrance, the secretary hears him out coolly and then calmly says to him in English, that's odd because you look exactly like Commander James Bond 007. And Bond gawps. And this is the Russian money penny. And like her English counterpart, she probably knows far more than anyone else in the entire service. She knows everything. And at a glance, she sees what Bond is carrying under his arm, knows what the file is, and knows that it's stolen from the safe. And Bond is like, fuck. 
but she smiles calmly and coolly up at Bond, and she knows uh, that Bond's interests right now are not anti-Russian, and actually stopping fanning will, you know, help. So she helps, and she takes Bond to the back of the massive office, you know, Gogo's office, and as they go, she says to him, it's funny, I must have seen your face and read about your capitalist exploits a thousand times, and yet I never thought we should meet face to face. And Bond, I hope I haven't proved a disappointment. And the secretary stops and turns to him, not yet. And they have a massive snog, because what the fuck? At the back of the office, still in an embrace, she reaches out blindly and presses a hidden button on the far wall. With a click, a secret door swings open. This is Stalin's secret escape tunnel, we learn, built in the 30s in case of revolt. Bond gives her a last massive smooch from the doorway, and then he turns to her and says, from England with love. And he flees down the tunnel, um, and the secretary watching him go a moment, then like smiles and sighs ruefully and closes the door back behind him with a click. And stooping in the tunnel as he speeds away, Bond says to himself, money, Benny, had better not find out about this, and he scarfers off. Back in the safe house, uh, Bond and Leiter are poring over the documents. It's a bloody jackpot. And Leiter comments on Bond's dishevelled appearance. And Bond is like, yes, thank you, Felix. I have just made my way through the KGB. And Leiter spots a smudge of lipstick on Bond's collar and says, and how? The entire city is now on red alert. So they meet with the businessman Bolshoi with a promised safe passage out of the city. They're told a meeting place, the abandoned Moscow Zoo, and it's all now unused and dilapidated. Snow and dusty mud cover the surfaces. So Bond and Felix get there and meet Bolshoi in the main area. And it's, you know, it's all shitty and dusty. And he asks if they retrieve the information that they required. And Leiter says, like, you don't have to worry about that. You know, but, you know, that's none of your concern. And Bolshoi's like, need is one thing. Want is something else entirely, Mr. Leiter. And it's another trap. And from around them, a half dozen goons swarm out and surround the heroes. And then his respiration announcing his presence before he is seen, Captain Weez enters and Bond looks at him and says, we really must stop meeting like this. And Bond and Lytra are forced to hand over the information now contained on this microphone. And Bond is like, that was the plan all along. Even Fanning couldn't infiltrate the heart of the Kremlin, still being enemy defector number one. And then Lytra indicating Bond. So they settled for number two, and Bond looks at him, acknowledging a possible poo pun at his expense. Now Bond and Leiter are enforced by gun pointed by a semicircle of gun-toting goons to back out of the entrance hall of the zoo, across the little enclosure, to uh, this uh, like, large open planned area, towards a massive pit, uh, with nowhere else to go, with advancing goons and a grinning wheeze. Leiter and Bond are forced to half-jump, half-slide down this long curved wall landing heavily down in the arena of frozen dirt in this huge pit. Above them, on the edge of the pit, Weez and his men stand and watch with interest. The pits, obviously, where large animals were housed. Uh, inside is mainly dirt and some snow, a dead tree trunk with a heavily chewed tire hanging from a rope from a branch is in the centre. And the only entrance is a large wooden sort of portcullis that can be raised or lowered. Uh, Leiter is like, okay, James, we've established contact. Any plans for the next stage? And Bond is like, you're dusting himself off. And then he's like, well, Felix, we're in the land of the great bear, so why not ask them? 
and Lota looks to see that the pit door is slowly going up and hot breath comes out first, followed by three very large grizzly bears uh, growling and snarling and snuffling around the ground towards our captured heroes. And it's the living crocodile scene gag. Um, the men back away from the advancing bears and lighter is like, hey, James, the next time you want to tackle a mission solo, you go right ahead. Come on, Felix. You told me yourself you were sick of paperwork. Yeah, well, I guess from now on I'll just have to grin and bear it. Exactly. The lead bear lunges and swipes at them. It also occurred to me, by the way, Jimmy, that I don't know if any Bond film, with the possible exception of License to Kill, has any sort of action scene involving Bond and Lighter sort of doing stuff together. Never say never again a little bit. It's kind of License to Kill. Don't give me no time to die. That's not an action scene at all. So it's interesting. So here we have a little bit of an action scene with our, with our friendly heroes. That's nice. The lead bear lunges and swipes at them as Bond and Lighter keep tightly back-to-back rotating, not taking their eyes off the huge and angry bears who are circling them. The one closest opens its ginormous mouth and bellows at them. Lighter is like, okay, so now what? And Bond, unhelpfully, asks him to sing another. Lighter looks at him, peeved. Then the bears attack. Bond and Lighter are forced to split, evading as best they can. The bears are large but fast. They swipe and bite and bellow and charge, and Bond and Lighter can only evade them for so long. Lighter is swiped in the shoulder, knocking him down, some blood visible through the gash in his suit jacket. Above, some goons seem to be taking bets. Bond's eyes dart about the enclosure, but there are no options to hand, except he races to the rotten tree and heaves on the tire and the rope, which comes loose as the branch breaks off. Lighter continues to evade, but is lagging. Bond takes the large branch and throws it to Lighter. Felix, the door! And motions toward the portcullis. Lighter runs and jams the branch under the door, using, the, you know, using it to jimmy it open. And it comes up about a foot, but then sticks again. Lighter straining, but only has one good arm, as the bear is still approaching on him. Above, Wee's clocks uh, what Lighter's up to, and he motions roughly at a goon. The goon understands and takes his machine gun from his shoulder and starts to take aim at Lighter. Bond still has the rope attached to the chewed tyre. Using the rope from the end, he starts swinging the tyre over his head like a rubber lasso until it moves in a blurred circle, and then Bond launches it hard up at the goon above with the machine gun. And before he can fire at Lighter, the tyre flies up and smacks him full on, causing him to stumble and then fall forward down into the pit. He lands heavily and is stunned and starts to get up, when one of the bears breaks off its advance at James and rushes right at the goon, the goon screams and tries to raise his gun, but it's too late, and the bear plows into him, the bulk of the massive bear blocking the view, but we get the distinct, you know, we're sort of looking at its back, and we get the distinct impression that this goon is being ripped to fucking pieces. So Weeze points furiously, uh, and the remaining goons lift their guns. Lighter heaves, and the door opens another foot, and he shouts, James! Bond sees the progress but has to duck another bear, uh, duck as another bear charges at him. Bond ducks behind the remains of the tree, which the bear swipes at and smashes into matchsticks. Bond runs the other way. Maybe he's exposed for a second by the tree after it's been smashed away. And he's actually just looking at the bear for a second and like, gives him a little smile and then runs off again. Uh, from above now, the goons open fire at Bond, who runs, slides on the ground like a batter making it to home. 
scoops up the goon's fallen gun and comes up on one knee. He aims up and immediately fires, hitting one goon who falls back and then the rest up for cover. Bond then turns and shoots him to the ground in front of the tree bear who is coming at him again. And the dirt kicks up in front of the bear and the bear falls back, lumbering away adorably. Bond's gun clicks empty. He tosses it aside and races the length of the pit. Lighter has jammed the branch right under the gate and the rotten, rotten wood is cracking and coming apart. Uh, but Felix now manages to squeeze under. The branch is giving some more, splintering, the door falling back down half a foot, coming to rest just for a moment. But at full speed, Bond runs, slides again, just as Wheeze emerges from above and shoots down at Bond with automatic fire and slides on the ground uh, as behind him it's churned up by bullets. He half slides, half rolls under the door just as the branch breaks apart and the door comes crashing back down. Lighter helps Bond to his feet. Bond sees the lever on the side of the door, which is actually used to engage it. And he considers this for half a second when Bolshoi turns up, emerging in front of them, holding a pistol and grinning victoriously. And Bond motions as if raising his hands in surrender, then pulls down hard on the lever, making the door slide open again all the way up. And then Bolshoi has a chance just to look at the door as it goes up. And then suddenly, without any further warning, the lead bear charges right in, in fury, and smashes straight into Bolshoi, who is instantly lost from sight. And we hear his muffled screams and the unpleasant sound of tearing and grunting. Bond and Lighter race away out of the zoo as the racing weeds and goons race after them. Weeze fires at their retreating backs, but is well out of range. Outside the zoo's main entrance, the otherwise deserted car park is like just filled with like one really massive, shiny and big uh, car, maybe a Rolls Royce, really out of place. And Bond's like, come on, there'll be Bolshoi's. I doubt he'll be needing it. So they get in as Lighter fiddles under the dash and uh, Lighter's saying, seems like the least he could do. And then the, in the car's engine comes to life and Bond in the passenger seat is like, Bolshoi got the microfilm, we got his car. Not exactly a fair trade. And Lighter turns to Bond and says, now aren't you glad I made a copy of the files? And before Bond can re react, Felix floors the car and they peel out of the area wheezing to a stop, helplessly watching them go. Um, so we find out the info from Russia now takes Bond to his next destination, now leaving Felix gratefully to his paperwork. Uh, so the Kremlin's files contained precious information about a freelance agent, only known as the Rook, a mysterious enigma who was the linchpin in Fanning's network of spies and intelligence gathering when he was apparently working for Russia as a war against England, but while he was also working to his own ends against everyone. All that is known of the Rook is he used to work for Sebastian as an inf information gatherer or quote-unquote secrets harvester during his time as both a mole and so on. Uh, the Rook has no allegiance, uh, whatever the price is right. Famously, the Rook once stole vital information from the British, sold it to Russia, but then stole it back from the Russians once the British met, their, met his price. Uh, Bond has zero respect for this opportunist, with no flag, no allegiance, and no scruples. However, the Rook was evidently highly prized by Sebastian, serving as one of his main captains, uh, the select few. So now all these other captains are dead, wiped out by Sebastian over the last few years to cover his tracks, 
and only the rook remains. But Russia has his last known location. Now, thanks to Bond, Sebastian has it. Uh, so now Bond and Sebastian know where this rook is. And that place is Venice. And so there Bond goes. Now, I chose Venice. I thought, oh, Venice again. But, you know, and I thought maybe Florence or maybe even Austria, you know, something like that. Um, but Venice works because we're seeing a very, very different Venice than uh, Moonraker or Casino Royale. Uh, the Venice we see in this film is only at night time. It's misty and foggy and shrouded in gothic horror. Narrow streets, echoing footsteps, glimpses of watching eyes and figures darting between shadows. It's don't look now meets eyes wide shut as Bond must make contact with the rook at an elaborate masquerade ball. Uh, so all those crazy masks and shit. Uh, so it could have been Vienna, but still, I, I was happy with this because I like don't look now. Contact is established with the flighty rook right in this very lush ball, who is naturally wary and knows Sebastian is closing in and knows Bond because, you know, the rook stole all the files and rightfully sees him as uh, the only hope. So the meeting has been arranged. It's midnight in the centre of the city as Bond, wearing a cape, tux, elaborate mask, and maybe one of those little town crier type hats, enters the impossibly luscious and massive ballroom. Bond, in his splendid apparel, moves deftly and smoothly through the throng of likewise dressed revellers. A very buxom lady holding a harlequin mask on a stick in front of her face slides to Bond and makes none too subtle suggestions, which Bond shoots down, saying he never trusts a lady in a mask. She lowers the mask and says, I'll show you mine if you show me yours. And Bond is like, no need to make the others jealous. And he slides away. Uh, keeping his mask on, leaving the lady miffed. Uh, as, the, as he moves through the throng on the dance floor, above, on an upper landing, a figure in hat, cape, mask, watches and, and walks with Bond, following his path from above. This mask that this man is wearing now is grotesque, and the eyes behind it, cold and calculating and triumphant. If it's not obvious immediately, it soon will be, that this is Sebastian Fanning in the flesh behind the mask, and he is all over Bond, stalking him through the swirling dancers and creepy guests. Bond navigates his way through the room, through the decadence, into an alcove behind, sort of separated in a little closed-off space with its own little small fireplace crackling away, a chaise lounge and an antique table behind the festivities. And there, in the quiet and dark, Bond makes contact with the rook, the rook is tall and thin, wearing a mask and cape. Um, very wary, the hook uh, warns Bond in a whisper to keep it the distance in the relatively small space. Bond removes his own mask and says, we don't have to trust each other. And they start a whispered exchange. The rook remains skittish and on the verge of flight. Bond's like, it's been one trap after another. I'm finished with being Fanning's pawn. And the rook is like, you fool. He must be right on top of you, of us both. And the rook pulls out and brandishes a long silver blade at Bond and starts backing away to the veranda door and escape. But Bond's had enough. He grabs the rook by the wrist, forcing the knife from the gloved hand. The rook struggles, but Bond instantly realises that this is no brawling bruiser and is physically no match for him. Bond rips off the rook's mask and steps back in slight shock as well as instinctive appreciation as the rook is revealed to be a beautiful woman with pale skin, dark eyes, raven hair, and deep red lips. Bond, well, 
when I came to Met the Rook, I must admit, this wasn't the sort of bird I had in mind. <laughs> uh, she has, she has uh, handled the world's darkest, deepest secrets, knows all about the players, and of course knows all about Bond inside and out. It's another woman who just knows all about Bond. Uh, they have a brief but heated debate in close quarters. Bond still standing close, holding her tight, grabbing the wrist, even though she knows she's dropped the blade. Um, they have a slight debate in front of the fire about her morality, uh, what with her spending the better part of the Cold War selling secrets to the highest bidder. And Bond is like, how many lives, I wonder, were lost due to your actions? And the Rook is like, do not dare to hypocrisize to me, Commander. If I have caused the death of a thousand men and women, I fear I am but an amateur to the suave of destruction, grief and blood. You yourself have left behind you like a deep rutted pain, scarred deep across nations. And she's got an Italian accent, but I'm not going to try and do that. Um, Bond's indignation is quelled just a touch by this reasoning, but he's still having none of it. And Bond is like, when well, I kill, it's for the queen and country, not the highest bidder. You say that like it proves your moral code is flawless, which is both devastatingly naive and heartbreakingly hilarious. Bond is about to continue the debate when a raucous couple burst into the alcove, diehard style, in amorous embrace. Bond and the Rook replace their own masks and head out, back into the throng. Bond, holding her still firmly by the elbow, pulling her close and almost hitting into her ear. All right, just stay close and we'll walk out of here together. And Rook says... And what makes you think I want your protection, Mr. Bond? Only you have the answer to that. Just ask yourself, do you want to survive this chess match or be knocked from the table like all the other pieces? They start to move when they both become aware of large goons in cloaks and masks and hoods starting to converge through the dance floor all around them towards them. And Bond and the Rook dance and spin across the ballroom, evading goon after goon. Ooh, this massive waltz. The rule is like, you know, weird, really dressed mask people. From above, the man in the mask watches everything play out beneath and speaks quietly to himself. And we have a close-up of his eyes and behind the mask. His voice, his soft voice, purring and melodic. And it's Sebastian. And he says, always one for the dance, James. Always one for the chase. Now Bond and Rook are close to the exit. Uh, when she looks up and freezes, and Bond tugs her and whispers and hisses sharply, Come on! But she remains frozen in place looking up. Uh, Bond follows her gaze, finding the man watching from above, and Rook, for the first time, totally losing her cool, showing real fear, icy fear, and she says, It's him. And we have a real push in on Bond as he looks up, and he reaches up instinctively and removes his own mask so he can stare openly right up at the masked man above. And we have a close-up of the man's eyes behind the mask, and then a close-up of Bond's eyes, and then both of their eyes intercutting as they both stare into the other's soul. And then the man regards Bond a moment, uh, and then he inclines his head a fraction in way of greeting, and then Bond says quietly to himself, Fanny. Rook suddenly wrenches her arm away from Bond, and before he can react, she bolts, darting away, instantly lost into the crowd um, of waiters, dancers, and drunk gluttons. Then, with a sharp turn and a swish of the cape, the masked fanning above turns and stalks away out of the room above, down a corridor. Bond doesn't hesitate and bolts after him, pushing through couples, crowds and groups, ignoring the angered shouts and protests of guests as he rushes up after the departing figure, racing for the stairs and then up and after him. 
On the red carpeted half circular staircase, Bond's path is blocked by a massive goon in cloak and mask. But Bond doesn't even slow down, crashing into the man and then throwing him physically down the steps behind him into a champagne carrying waiter, upsetting the tray and causing a commotion. Bond's already at the top of the stairs and down the corridor on Seb's trail. Bond bursts through the doors at the out, uh, and then gets outside. The noise of the party is still audible, but now uh, faint and muted. And now suddenly, from the bright and garish room, Bond is instantly in the dark and deserted and soundless street um, next to the canal, a stark contrast to the environment he just left. Bond pauses a beat and then concentrates, hearing the sound of retreating footsteps echoing on the cobbles. Bond rushes off after that down the back streets, through sort of glimpsed you know, little images of this like fleeing person as Bond chases through these moody locales. Obviously very, very don't look now, as Bond chases the glimpsed figure ahead, darting down narrow and twisting alleys over bridges in the canal, the swish of a cape as it disappears around a bend ahead, or the continued footsteps of stone stay ahead of Bond at every turn. Until finally Bond emerges from a tight alley immediately facing the canal, and on the other side, now facing him, is the man in the mask. And then the man reaches up and pulls back his own mask, finally revealing Sebastian Fanning in full for the first time. And he looks openly at Bond, um, a twitch of a superior smile on his face as Bond stares back, 96% hate and fury, and 4% a slight smirk and nod of his, of his own head. Uh, this is a third man moment, brief, but as the pair face uh, the other over the misty water, a thousand conversations and a million wars are fought and won and lost all at once. Then from both sides of Bond, as well as the alley behind him, a dozen gooned figures all emerge, um, still in the masks and the ballroom attire, uh, converging on Bond, as Sebastian then turns and is once again swallowed to the darkness. The lead mask wearer has a wheeze coming from behind it, and as Bond turns, he's utterly unsurprised as the mask is removed, and there's wheeze under there, and he starts to grin as all the cloaked figures pull out automatic guns, aiming directly at Bond. Um, by the way they stand, it seems capture is not on their mind. Bond has nowhere to go, because if he jumps in the canal, he's just going to be shot up immediately anyway. In front of this, he backs uh, against the bank, the water behind him, and as this happens, an empty gondola drifts from left to right in the middle of the canal, right across the centre, very quietly. They're like, Whoop. Then suddenly, a figure sits and then stands up in the gondola, and it is the rook. She faces Bond and all three strands of the converging goons, and she shrugs off her long cloak, revealing a side-loading machine gun. And Bond looks over his shoulder, seeing this, and then turns and faces the men around him, and then just steps back calmly and drops straight down into the canal with a splash. And then immediately on the boat, the rook raises the gun, Weezer's eyes go wide as he dives back into cover just as she opens fire, decimating the men, mowing them down in this really tight alley where they all are, and on either side of the canal. The sound of the gunfire echoing off the towering buildings and the, uh, the water is deafening, especially after the dense quiet. Men fall, some splashing into the canal, others flee, others fall where they stand. The rook strafes right to left and right again, expertly annihilating the tight cluster of doomed men. 
She only stops firing when the last man is down and the gun clicks empty, smoke rising from its barrel, mingling with the mist as it swirls around her. Then Bond bursts to the surface next to the boat and pulls himself aboard. He pants for a second and looks up at her, dripping wet. And Bond says, and here I thought you'd abandon me. And the rook looks down at him, still holding the machine gun. And she says, it's like you said, Commander, if I am to survive, I need to choose a side, at least for now. And yours is as good as I'm getting. And Bond slightly miffed. You flatter me. Rook, find the oar and take us to more. So Bond says, I never argue with a lady with a gun. And Rook says, I find that difficult to believe. And Bond smiles despite himself as they drift off down the silent canal. So Bond and the Rook reach a safe house. It's one of hers. Bond still in dripping clothes as they enter a pretty modest place. And uh, Bond says, we should be safe here until morning. Then we can leave the city. And uh, the Rook, good. You can spend the time getting your strength back. You're needed. And Bond is already removing his jacket and unbuttoning his sodden shirt. And he says, well, you know what they say. Exercise is the best remedy. She appraises him coldly a moment and then almost gives like a tiny shrug as if, oh, why not? And they embrace and they get to it. Cut. Uh, Bond and Rook. Uh, who is, we now find out more about. Uh, she introduces herself formally as the Countess uh, Elisa Frattini, or Isabella uh, Frattini, an Italian countess turned black market information gatherer, having lost her family land and family wealth in post-war Italy. So she takes him deep into the Italian countryside now uh, to a villa she owns, but cannot be traced to her for now. And their bond makes contact with Felix and London using her, quote, ample equipment. During the conversation now, Bond speaks to Leiter intercut with where he is, presumably like in Langley or some such. And we learn that as well as the UK and US and Russians, that everyone is trying to track down Sebastian. Um, and in fact, uh, every, every dirty deed is going to be made public. Every lie and action, past and present, of all espionage communities all over the world, thus levelling the global playing field. It's not just secrets covered up, it's ongoing uh, operations, deep operations. So when everyone knows everyone else's secrets, it's going to, on one hand, level the playing field. Um, but still, it's going, to, it's going to cause a lot of damage. Uh, governments will topple, there will be civil war, there will be huge unrest. People will turn against their governments. Everything will crumble and fall. Um, on top of this, we also have like um, Mossad of sending agents uh, after Sebastian, as well as the Republic of China Army are in the mix. Um, some of these agents uh, may have made appearances throughout, for example, um, but generally yeah, we've heard about them in any case. Um, so now, after Venice, um, this huge bit of information has come to light. Um, from someone has, has discovered the location um, <clears throat> and so the competing agencies have all discovered the location is a typically, you know, it's like a, uh, where Sebastian is going to be. It's a typically grand location for a Bond uh, lair, villain's lair. Uh, it's like a disused submarine assembly plant on an island just off the coast of Japan and all the security places including CIA and MI5 are all, all over it for them. Um, so through Bond and Felix's conversation now, we learn that assault teams comprised of the best of the best, and Bond tries not, tries not to look hurt, are all moving in uh, to this strike zone right now. 
<coughs> but Bond doesn't like it, revealing he's been in contact with M and London and has expressed his concern about this eggs-in-one-basket approach. Having been hoodwinked by Fanning once too often, uh, Bond is having none of it, but M is now calling him paranoid. Uh, London and Washington and apparently Moscow and all the others are like going to this location, sending all their best people. M has even ordered Bond to stand down now that the end game for Fanning is apparently near. So from Isabella's well-equipped mini-base and from Leiter's base in Langley, all three watch on tiny spy screens, or maybe large spy screens, with blips, you know, converging on this island base. And Bond's suspicions grow until he says into the radio phone, Felix, tell your men to stand down, but it's too late. And in a massive ambush uh, with Sebastian once again proving to be eight moves ahead and his long game unraveling with this info, info just when he needed, SAS, Navy SEALs, all of them, they walk into a trap and are, are all killed, blown up, let's say, at the same time. The camera, uh, the, the island explodes off camera, basically. <clears throat> it's just like blanks off the screen and stuff. And we just see the blips disappear. And uh, Felix, after a long and shocked pause, is like, the island, the entire island, it's gone. And uh, all the agencies are fucked. All those chess pieces have been knocked off the board. Um, so now Bond applies reverse logic. With Isabella's help, they work out the next most likely location Fanning will have used as his base with various radio waves plotted and tracked and triangulated and so forth also put into the mix. Um, so Bond is like, where is literally the last place anyone would look, you know, for, for, for him without knowing who he is, you know? Um, so what's a, an atypical location or what's the opposite? So grasping at straws, maybe, but Bond and Isabella head to the location that has been pinpointed. And this location is America. It's Montana. It's a huge horse and cattle ranch in the middle of nowhere. It's Yellowstone, Jimmy, 1975. Uh, M is deeply unconvinced, and Leiter says there's no way that he can tell his bosses to check out somewhere on home turf, right in, like, mid-northwest, I guess. They would never go through it, being so embarrassingly under their noses. So with unofficial blind-eye support from M, or with no actual backup from home or U.S., Bond and Isabella go to um, uh, Montana and fly in a commandeered crop duster over like the possible areas, uh, over the vague location of Bond's hunch, over 50 square miles of woodland and mountain and field. Uh, in the cockpit of this crop duster, uh, and this is a bit quantum of solace, but uh, Isabella is losing hope after some fruitless searching, and Bond is like, I have a hunch we're on the right track. Is this English optimism? More like inevitable opposite. And uh, he indicates out the window, as five small aircraft come at them fast and we have a good old sequence and Bond uses uh, the plane to fly about. He uses, uh, she fires out of the side windows of, this, of these other planes. Bond uses the crop duster to land on another plane so he goes into the side of a mountain. Um, and then eventually after this exciting action sequence, Bond and Isabella crash land and emerge dusty and dirty uh, from the wreckage of the plane in this wide open space just as a battered truck pulls up next to them. Um, and the driver is an old man, a bit of a hick, craggy and dusty with deep lines on his tanned and weathered face behind some thick glasses. And he gawps as these two approach the truck from the wreckage, dusting themselves off. 
Uh, and, you know, these are possibly two of the most glamorous people he's ever seen. Uh, and Bond politely inquires if they can get a lift to the nearest phone. And the hick is like, you have to ride with the girls and jerks his thumb to a rig he's pulling behind his tiny truck, uh, which on closer inspection is revealed to be filled with two large llamas heading through his llama ranch. And Bond looks at him and says, run out of cows. And so they gingerly, as um, as uh, Isabella gingerly peers inside the trailer, um, two unimpressed llamas look out, and Isabella looks daggers at Bond and starts to climb inside, and the hick calls back, be careful, she spits, and Bond nodding towards Isabella, oh, you've met? The man drives them then to a local diner, then bouncing about with the llamas, uh, and then at the local diner, it's again, it's another location, I don't think we've ever seen Bond in this kind of place, or in this sort of uh, you know state, for example, you know, in, in, in America. So uh, Bond and the girl, uh, Isabella, enter the diner, where Bond tries to make use of the payphone, but it's out of order. So here we have another fish-out-of-water scene with Moores, Bond, and Isabella sitting at the t counter of this rural American diner, um, playing country and western, filled with some truckers, cowboys, and ranch hands, looking at the pair with open curiosity, but no hostility as such. Uh, Isabella is drinking the freshly poured coffee, but being Italian is not the fan. Uh, Bond sits down next to her at the counter and gingerly examines the laminated one-page menu. Uh, and the, the middle-aged, slightly frazzled waitress, who, like the clientele, has been watching Isabella, and especially Bond, with fascination, now fills up Bond's coffee cup and stands holding her notepad and stubby pencil poised. The name on her badge reads Darlene. So Darlene, making uh, eyes at the strange creature that is Bond, says, You folks ready to order? And Bond, hesitant but polite, uh, What do you recommend? And waitress, uh, in her thick Midwestern drool, Chicken's good. And Bond politely turns to Isabella, and in a bit of a, do you want me to drive? A sort of voice, he says, chicken? Uh, Isabella looks at him, unimpressed, but then her gaze moves past Bond out the window and a dust cloud heading their way up the long and dusty road. And trucks are approaching fast. So Bond puts down his coffee and says to Darlene, um, is there a back way out? And Darlene says, there ain't no way out. And Bond is puzzled and then, reveal as the entire diner turn and stare at Bond and Isabella with sudden dark animosity and they all get out knives and guns and pistols and a length of rope and everyone's suddenly looking at them uh, and it's exactly like the the Irish pub and Bond is like you know Bond and Isabella are pushed you know their backs to the counter facing this mob Bond's like my God, of course, another fake community, another village. Isabella to the assembled diners now advancing. You people, this isn't the way. And a gruff cowboy says, no, but this is. And he takes the final step to them, raising his hunting knife. Bond steps forward and punches him in the face. At the same moment, Isabella grabs the coffee jug from Darlene and turns, throwing the hot contents into the face of a trucker type then turns and throws the jug into the face of another, and, you know, the jug smashes. Bond grabs uh, the, the rancher with the gun 
and throws him bodily into two others and they all go down in a tangle, Bond now turns to a gawping Darlene and says, back door. And Darlene just like cocks a thumb behind her indicating the door. Uh, and now Bond grabs Isabella's hand and pulls her away and they both like sort of jump over the counter, like sliding over on their bums. And Bond's like, as he lands, thank you, Darlene. I'm afraid you'll have to hold the chicken. And Darlene, warming to him further, despite everything, says, I'll hold whatever you want, Mr. Man. <laughs> and Isabella rolls her eyes as she slides off the countertop. And then Bond is like, yes, well, another time, perhaps. And then Bond and Isabella flee at the back of the diner and across this wide open field, utterly exposed. Uh, the truck scenario pulling up at the diner in big clouds of dust. And uh, Isabella you know, shouts, there must be a car or a truck we can steal. And Bond sees something off camera and gives a little point and says, how rural are you feeling? And uh, she looks where he points and stares disbelieving and says, you can't be serious. And Bond already walking out of frame. Why do people always say that to me? And she follows a mouth open. The trucks now like are, are screeched up and they drive up towards the barn over the field. Um, just as Bond and Isabella enter this large barn and bang the door shut behind them. Men pour out of the trucks and guns are raised and cocked. Uh, and Mr. Wee steps out of one of the lead trucks with a massive gun of his own. And they advance on the barn, standing alone in this like most wide of landscapes. And from inside the barn, a motor comes to life in a moment. And then the goons advance uh, in a semicircle around the door of the barn's entrance and two goons step ahead of the others, one covering and the other one keeping his machine gun steady, but reaching out with his other hand to tentatively grab hold of the handle of the bar door, when suddenly the entire barn door explodes in a shower of splintered wood, and a combine harvester plows out, smashing the door into the lead man and colliding with the other with the side of its large and powerful metal frame. Weez and the other guards surrounding the vehicle are stunned into inaction for just a moment as the harvester then smashes into the side of one of the trucks and moves at a surprising speed, but, you know, not very fast, away across the field. And the men now open fire, the bullets pinging off the metal. And inside, like, the cockpit, uh, Bond and Isabella are, like, flinching and half-ducking as the bullets rattle and ping around them, some hitting the frame of the cab, but missing the occupants, luckily. And now there's a chase across the open cornfields of Montana. Uh, this is like the bus scene from Livin or and all the rest. The remaining trucks now give chase and are obviously faster, but Bond swerves into one and the front rotor blade of the combine tears up the front tire of another, making it flip massively, A-team style, um, right up, corkscrewing in the air or smashing down to the field again uh, as, the, as the harvester trundles on. And they go through a field of tall corn being lost uh, uh, to sight for half a beat. And then like a driver of one of the trucks is idling for a second when from the side the, uh, the, the harvester smashes through the corn and tears through uh, right at the driver's window, churning up the side of the, of the truck and plowing straight into the, uh, into the guy. The, um, well, you know, into the side of the truck, which then flips over. With some cool moves, Bond does well while Isabella again fires from uh, a commandeered machine gun, uh, riddling the truck's windscreens with bullets, apparently hitting the driver of one, as the truck then swerves, hits a rock, and again flips 
impressively thrashing, flipping, rolling and resting in a cloud of dust and prairie dirt. With one remaining truck advancing, with wheeze, of course, in it, a goon then leaps from the side and onto the side of the harvester. Isabella takes the controls as Bond grapples with the goon. Uh, the goon gets the upper hand, forcing Bond onto his back, uh, his head very close to the back of the rotor blades of the harvester, churning up the wheat and tall grass. As Bond's head is forced closer to the whirling blades, Isabella swerves hard, causing the goon to half lose his balance. Bond uses this, punching the goon in the face. He rolls, gains the advantage, then punches the goon again, square in the face, knocking him back and into the harvester's blades. And he falls back with a terrible scream. And just like a Majesty's Secret Service, we, we have minimal but very suggestive shot of churned wheat being shot up into the air, now liberally mixed with red chunks of body bits <laughs> flying high over the field. And Bond Take climbs back into the... Like massively. Uh, Bond climbs back into the cockpit and says to Isabella, you reap what you sow. Uh, the final truck now with Wheeze firing from the passenger side rushes at the harvester. With no more cover, they are now exposed to this assault. Then Bond steers them right at a huge gulch, very, very steep uh, and very, very uh, long. And Bond's like, hold on. And the harvester tilts down dramatically, then shoots down this incredibly steep slope of grass and stones and weeds and roots. And the harvester goes down really fast, faster than any harvester has ever gone ever at a good 60 degree angle. It moves um, far faster than it was ever designed to go. The blades churning up rocks and dirt and bending and busting, covering Bond and Isabella in a cloud of brown dust. Uh, the truck shoots right down um, and then crashes to the bottom of this gulch, um, landing in a big tangle of twisted metal. Uh, Bond gets out, pulls out, uh, Isabella helps her down, and they race up the gulch as uh, Weezer's truck uh, also has followed them down, and he's firing after them, but now the harvester is half blocking the truck, so Bond and Isabella are able to run to the end of the gulch, uh, where they come out right in front of a road. They barely have a moment to cough and wave away the dirt uh, when a truck falls right up in front of them. Um, as Weeze and the others are racing up the gulch behind them. But then Bond sees the driver of the truck, and it's the llama farmer. And Bond's smiling, and he's like, ah, and not a moment too soon. But then freezes as the driver, Hick, points a large rifle out of the window right at them. And the figures race up the gulch behind Bond and Isabella as they slowly raise their hands in front of the llama man with the gun. And Bond says, well, I must say, so far the reputation of American hospitality has not disappointed. And Wheeze is now directly behind Bond, and he brings down his gun down on Bond's neck from behind, knocking him down and out. Cut to black, and cut up. When we open up, Bond opens his eyes. He's in a very large, very plush living room. Sofas, beautiful furnishings, massive picture windows overlooking the impressive Montana landscape. This is the uh, the same office that we saw Sebastian in before, but now it's all lit up in glorious daytime, and it's lovely. Uh, Bond gets up with a bit of a more oof and gingerly moves around the huge and open-spaced room. It's very modern, very comfortable, while maintaining an old-world charm. Bond is examining the view from one of the windows. He appears to be on a ranch. Outside is the front of the house, 
a wide open drive, a mammoth barn to the right, wide open space on the left, with some cattle in a pen straight ahead, uh, and past this circular dusty driveway, there are horses being ridden and broken in by skilled cowboys in a large circular paddock. Uh, Bond, and you know, it is Yellowstone, basically. Um, Bond takes it all in, looking out the window at this, when a voice behind uh, startles him, and it's Sebastian, he says, impressive beasts, wouldn't you say? And Bond whirls, standing across the room is Sebastian Fanning. He appears relaxed, a gracious host, wearing like, you know, white shirt, smart trousers, nice shoes. And he takes a few steps into the room and Sebastian's like, I was never particularly fond of animals, as you may well know, but I must say these are quite magnificent. And Bond from across the room, I never took you for a rural type. Hello, Sebastian. Hello, James. He now stops in the centre of the room and Bond moving around, but towards him mock casual. They're sort of like stalking each other a little bit, pretending to be friendly. And Sebastian's like, yes, you continue to know me too well. But what better way and what better place for my last move? Completing a chess match I've been playing for, oh, so fast, such a very long time. I'm glad you're here before I clear the board and wipe away the dusty pieces of the old world once and for all. The new world for my brave new world order. Mm. They touch on uh, the fake community uh, of it all. Um, this place, the whole Montana area, including the diner, for many, many miles, uh, just like the Irish village, is populated by fake locals, and it's the perfect cover for Sebastian's operation. And Bond is like, more theatrics, smoke and mirrors, just like the old days. So much easier to control a community when you own the community. Uh, Seb offers Bond a bourbon on the rocks, which he hands to Bond, Bond reaching and taking it, but they're both like coiled springs. It's like in Gross Point Blank with Ackroyd uh, at the beginning. And they're sort of keeping their eyes fixed on each other um, over the simple exchange of the glass. Bond takes it and takes a sip and then, you know, nods, acknowledging the bourbon's quality. And they drift away from each other again as the conversation continues. And they clash ideologies, uh, touch on hypocrisy and the death of friendship. Insanely, Sebastian is genuinely hurt by Bond's betrayal, exposing him as the mole back in the day, those years ago. And Bond is like, I see you haven't lost your knack for blending deep hypocrisy with simple psychosis. This whole time, Bond and Sebastian have still been circling each other with this sort of veneer of polite converse. When at the end of this first round, um, Bond is close enough to make a move, having assessed correctly that Sebastian is unarmed. Uh, but just as Bond is coiled and apparently ready to strike, the familiar sound of Captain Wheeze causes Bond to turn, just in time for his entrance, as three more guards enter at various entrance points. I think they've been there all the time, just waiting. And uh, Sebastian is like, walk with me, James. They move through the large ranch house, seeing various other plush rooms. They, they glimpse through some half-closed doors filled with large computer banks, uh, whirling reel-to-reel -reel spooling tapes and other clunky, impressive gadgetry. And Seb explains that Weeze was most angered by being robbed of the chance to kill Bond in the gulch. Uh, but Seb says that Bond has come this far, gotten this close to his base of operations, so Sebastian simply has to know how James did it, how he worked it out, or do other people know that he's there? Uh, and Seb Sebastian's like, quite an ingenious display of logical reasoning. 
I'm glad you remember my lessons. And Bond, if you're looking for a compliment, you'll have to settle for the whiskey. I would never dream of imposing such pressure on a guest such as yourself. And the rook? Oh, I had many secret harvesters in my employee over the years, but none so capable as her. Uh, they have moved through the room and now step outside, walking around the side of the ranch house, see more guards, more cowboys, more horses, more activity. Bond is like, um, you always did place more value on commodity than human life. And Sebastian, my commodity, as you say, has shaped the landscape of the world and are poised to do so much more. Secrets, my precious birds, like secrets. And the rook, Miss Rattini, she found them, kept them, nurtured them, all for me. All my secrets, for small whispered secrets. A quarrel of sparrows fluttering in my ear. Then the jackdaw, precious, valuable, glittery, traded in the train. A clattering, a flock. And then the largest, my prize, my prize secrets. The crows moving in the most beautiful of groups. My most precious, my murder of secrets. And my prize chess piece, my rook keeping and caring for all of my birds for so many years. Your avian analogies remain as flighty as those you use for chess. Oh, you can deflect all you want, James. Flippancy has always been your stock in trade. Uh, Sebastian takes Bond with like his armed escort and wheeze uh, further around the side of the ranch house. On the lawn, there are these three huge satellite dishes, like each the size of a small minivan, each pointing in different directions, the tip of each nose uh, flashing red. And Bond is like, I see you're a fan of all the mod cons. It's almost time to release my birds to the world. If I want all data to be delivered safely and cleanly with no chance of disruption from the outside, then yes, James, these will transmit my murder all around the world instantaneously. Once they're out, there's no calling them back. When my birds fly, they're free. And Bond, pity you never took up carrier pigeons. And Sebastian sort of chuckles. And they loop back round to the house through a back door, through a very nice kitchen, then through a nice library. And then in the bookcase in the library, it's already open, uh, like a false bookcase into another larger room beyond. And this is the control centre, a very large, very modern uh, room of all sorts of equipment. And there we find a very large and sturdy man um, at this bank of computers and banks and machines and radar scopes. And, and also a large array of TV screens fill up one wall, each showing security footage from different rooms around the house. Uh, maintaining these machines, then, is this older man, a very, very well-built, um, after a lifetime of rough living and wrangling, an ex-ranch hand with weather-beaten skin, barrel chest and casual clothes, hard eyes, probably about 60, but, you know, nails as fuck, impressive moustache and gruff manner. This is the ranch boss, uh, Mr. Cleave. And he speaks with a Montana drool and basically ignores Bond, monitoring various radio signals from reporting to Sebastian that the codes are almost complete and ready to be sent out. As Mr. Cleave and Sebastian converse briefly, Bond scans the TV monitors and clocks Isabella alone in a room apparently in one piece, but sitting on the floor, her knees drawn up. The top of the monitor is labelled B4. Other rooms have corresponding designations. Uh, Sebastian now turns uh, from Cleve and follows Bond gaze 
to Isabella on the screen, and Sebastian, Ah, yes, of course, 007 would inquire of the fairer sex. Well, you have, no need to fear, James. Mr. Cleave has been busy entertaining her, and I must say he reports as being somewhat exasperated by her reluctance. Uh, Bond clocks Cleave, who has a freshly split lip, but also red knuckles on his right hand, and Bond whistles. And Bond says, I'm glad she's maintaining her good taste. And Sebastian, but not, I fear, for long. A slight rest for her to rediscover her tongue, and then Mr. Cleave shall try anew. For right now I need to take advantage of Miss Fratelli's resilience by quizzing her of what secrets she still possesses, and whom she may have divulged these secrets to. She was always my best, you know, but of course she must die, and soon. I will indeed be sad when the time comes to mourn her. And you, of course you, James, I shall mourn you most of all. And, uh, Bond, you flatter me. This bank of monitors houses uh, the decoded and recoded microfiles ready for transmission. Bond now is led away by Sebastian and Rees and the guards out of this room, further down the long labyrinthine corridors. And he's, you know, Sebastian's monologuing as they go, um, you know, and, you know, really getting into the plan as if people didn't know about it yet. Um, War will follow, insurrections will follow, destruction, blah, blah, blah. Um, societies will crumble. And most damagingly, the loss of blind faith from the pawns. The masses will lose all faith in their governments, and not all at once, not immediately, to be sure. But ultimately, all will crumble, all will fall. And I shall remain the only power left on the board and bond. And how many innocents will suffer and die during this upheaval? Yes, yes, the people may find it beneficial to fend for themselves for a change. They become too pampered, too entitled. No government to hold their hand, no, no health care to pat them on their head, no education, no bin men, no street lamp maintenance. Your new world will dissolve into barbarism. Walls must fall before they can be rebuilt, James. The side effects of all rebellions are casualties. You know this. But in the end, the world will be a stronger, unified force. One that will flourish under one rule, one leadership, and one objective. Truth. No more secrets. Forever. You can't expect to be allowed to survive this. You know, if the signal goes out, you'll never make it to see your brave new world. If I can be found before my flock goes out, I certainly won't be after. I have been ahead of every so-called power, every so-called brain, the Russians, Chinese, Americans, and you, of course, my poor Jane, my puppet on a string. The art of misdirection, Mr. Bond. You will remain hoodwinked, and I shall watch right to the end. And so James is established to pose no threat. Uh, they enter one last room. It's like a massive study. And this is the room that we saw Sebastian in before with the desk and stuff. It's pretty bare. But there's this large desk next to the massive window, uh, and this desk is housing all the satellite dish readout controls linked to those massive satellite dishes outside. In the centre of this massive room is a separate, large, self-contained room, basically a huge bank vault. Uh, the massive door is open, revealing inside it is steel, with steel walls and floor and ceiling, and with like a one chair just in the middle of it. And Sebastian leads Bond towards this, like sort of like a friendly arm around his shoulders, probably. And Seb says, 
I'd truly love to keep you around, at least until after the code has successfully gone out. But experience, my dear James, shows that you are not a man to be kept around. I must have read just about, I think, every report you've ever written. And uh, James uh, Bond is like, you know, I hope you enjoyed. Uh, Wheeze now steps forward eagerly, uh, very eagerly, uh, which Bond frowns at. Uh, in the centre uh, is this chair which Bond keeps looking at, and Sebastian says, Yes, your final resting place, James, and one, I fear, you are always heading toward. I could always see eight moves ahead, you see. I'm sure it will make to remain so predictable. We all have our strengths. Yours shall not be a quick or merciful death. You're just always been too slow to allow it. I owe the captain that much besides. So die slowly, 007, finding solace if you can, knowing that you simply never had a chance. So now Seb bids farewell to Bond, heading for the doorway as Weeze advances on Bond at the doorway to the vault. Uh, Sebastian turns to Weeze just uh, for a moment and says, Make sure you get any last information from him. There may still be a threat. So be thorough and enjoy yourself. Seb reaches the doorway uh, and Bond um, seeing that his time is up and that his options are gone, Bond speaks up one last time and in a close-up on Bond's sort of head and shoulders shot, he says, I do have some final thoughts you might like to answer. And Seb, turning from the main room's doorway, says back, Oh, nothing would give me greater delight, James, but not this time. Torture than death, as I always saw, for your time, 007, is up. And then in this close-up of Bond's face, we see him began to formulate a response when suddenly from behind, Wheeze brings down and over his head a large cloth bag, kind of like a small pillowcase, rammed down fast and hard. And then Bond's face is suddenly covered by this with this sort of rough noise. And we have a hard cut. And we see Isabella in her bare room, still sitting with her back to the wall, arms uh, hugging her bent knees. And she's slightly battered. Um, she's trying to keep her resolve and stuff, but she can't hide her fear. And then the door unlocks and it opens, uh, being opened by a goon who then steps aside and Seb enters. And they look, uh, yeah, Sebastian looks down at her and she looks up, um, defiant but scared. But he just looks down at her with a sort of a smug half smile, a moment of silence. And then Sebastian says, I thought you'd be comforted to know that your partner in betrayal is about to meet a fate much like your own. And Isabella, comforted? Well, interested then. And he paused as he looks at her and changes his tone. I hear you've been keeping Mr. Cleave busy. He is, I gather, quite perturbed. Your resistance to his charms has put him behind my most delicate of schedules. You remember how timekeeping was always one of my bugbears. Cleave is being forced to miss the slow torture of our Mr. Bond, and he motions to the security camera in the corner of the ceiling, thing, having to embrace his nation's uh, shared habit of catching it on a rerun. And then he turns back away from the camera and says to Isabella, he will have to content himself with your own live performance. And then he turns, smiles, and then leaves. And Isabella just sort of calls out after him with a, little quaver in her voice, Sebastian, and it's the closest she comes to showing proper fear, and there is a pleading quaver, um, and Sebastian like holds up his hand for silence, cutting her off, and says, please, my dear, I so dearly wish to remember you as you were, strong, 
defiant, mine, and he leaves the room, closing and locking the door behind him. Sebastian walks back down the heavily booked case hallways, uh, past various guards, back to the main control room. Uh, Mr. Cleave is working busily, and Cleave is like, five minutes before transmission. And Sebastian's like, excellent, back on schedule. And then softly to himself, almost sing-song. So now my birds must fly. Fly, fly away, little birds. Find your nests and sting. Uh, he orders Cleave to double-check the satellite dishes and plays before the transition goes out, transmission goes out. Uh, he then turns and walks back to his large office with a care in the world with the ease of a man utterly victorious as he always knew he would be. Uh, so Sebastian he quick, quickly checks his desk in his office with the satellite dish operating equipment. Uh, he turns and looks back into the doorway of the vault. It's empty but for Bond, bag on head, hands secured behind his back, tied to the chair. The body is slumped and prone in bad shape now. The chest rising and falling is the only sign of life. And Sebastian walks to the entrance of the vault, keeping his half-smile, and he stands before the apparently broken man before him. And Sebastian says, Still with us, James? As always, I remain deeply impressed, even envious, of your stamina, your endurance. And I must confess to some personal gratification, having you here, able to witness the moment the signal goes out. Are you ready to see your world end, James? Your precious country? Your pathetic world order? Would you like to beg, James, just one last time before it's all over? There's a slight pause. James? Then the smallest of all frowns as Sebastian takes a few steps towards the figure. Now from under the hood, a small noise, and Sebastian takes another small step, already knowing the truth deep down. From beneath the hood now comes the sound of wheezing, and Sebastian slowly reaches out, pinches the top of the bag with thumb and finger, and lifts off the hood, revealing the bloodied face of Captain Weeds. And as Sebastian looks down, James Bond steps out from behind him, gun in hand. And a crooked smile playing on his face, Sebastian turns slowly and faces Bond. Uh, and Sebastian says, Well played, James. But you'll have to be fast. The transmission is imminent. And Bond, no time to waste them. And uh, Sebastian, bravo, 007. Clear the board. You've taken the king. He smiles this time. For the first time, it seems like a genuine smile as he looks at Bond. Bravo. Checkmate. And Bond shoots him once in the forehead. And Sebastian's expression doesn't change, his mouth keeping the smile as the life leaves his eyes. And the body drops and hits the floor, dead. And Bond, looking at the corpse. That was always the difference between us. I don't play games. Suddenly, outside the vault, a buzzer on the desk sounds, and we hear Cleve's voice on the intercom, saying, Sir, satellites checked and ready. The signal's going out now. And Bond doesn't waste a moment. He rushes out from the vault, out of the room, and into the corridor. comes face to face with two guards, about ten metres away, walking his way. They don't believe what they're seeing. They freeze in shock. They, then they scramble for their guns. Too late. Bond doesn't hesitate. Fires two rapid shots. Bang, bang. They go down. Bond tears off down the corridor. Back inside the study, we now move in on the open doorway to the vault. And in a moment of quiet, we have as a semi-conscious Captain Wees now in the chair, slowly opens his eyes and sees the dead body of Sebastian on the floor in front of him. And he stares for a long moment. And then his face begins to vibrate, turning red. 
and his mouth opens really wide. At first there is no sound, and then a long and impossibly pained wheeze emerge, turning into a yell, turning into a bellow of rage and fury, and wheeze stands all at once and the chair splinters beneath him. Cut two, Bond rushing left and right down corridors, finding the room marked B4. The guard outside sees Bond too late as he rounds the corner and Bond just clocks him in the face and knocks him down. Bond throws open the door and moves straight in, finding Isabella, who just stares up at him in total incomprehension, then shock, then the very beginnings of realisation as Bond unties her binds if she is bound. And she says, James, you're alive? I've always preferred it that way. Can you walk? And he helps her up almost tenderly, but there's no time. Bond says this is a two-man job. She must get to the main bank of the equipment in the main control room and destroy the files. He'll rush to the satellite control room to stop the signal from that source. So Isabella stoops and takes the fallen gun's sidearm, and then they part, racing away in opposite directions down the corridor. Bond gets back to the office and the vault room and starts messing with the switches on the desk, trying to find the satellite dish guidance controls. He's, forced, uh, he's focused completely. Unseen behind him, the broken chair is visible in the empty vault. Uh, meanwhile, in the control room, Mr. Cleave is finally able to relax. All the dials and readings seem to be to his satisfaction while he puts down his clipboard and goes to a monitor labeled vault. On the screen is like at the high angle from security camera um, with a, like a flickering paused image. Uh, Cleve presses some buttons and the image fast forwards a bit with <laughs> sound and Cleve sits down and breathes a little like sigh of satisfaction as the video commences and we see from the security video Wheeze pushing Bond into the vault at gunpoint, Bond still with the bag over his head uh, with his hands sort of held out passively in front of him and uh, Cleve watches the screen where we, uh, Wheeze pushes Bond towards the centre and the chair making Bond stumble and he has to grab the, uh, and grip the chair for support in his weakened condition. And Cleve smiles at this, uh, but then his smile freezes as on the monitor, Bond turns suddenly, swinging the chair, smashing it into Weez's face. We see Weez drop as Bond pulls off the bag off his head, kicks Weez once savagely um, and Weez is down. And then wide-eyed, Cleve watches as Bond is heaving the prone body of Weez into the now weakened chair and puts the bag over his head. Um, during all of this, behind Cleve, his eyes locked on the screen, we see the door of the control room behind him silently opened and closed. Unable to believe his eyes, Cleve finally snaps out of his trance and moves to a large red button at the far end of the control room with alarm helpfully printed above it. His hand raises to smash down on this when he freezes once more, his eyes wider than other, because before him stands Isabella. The gun held in her hand is steady, and her eyes are cold, and Cleve then just stares, then lunges for the alarm button, and we just hold on the rook as she fires once, twice, three times, and then she watches motionless for a beat, and then we hear off camera the sound of Cleve collapsing dead to the floor. Inside the office, at the satellite controls, Bond is desperately fiddling away and his eyes find a series of switches that he recognises. And Bond says, there we are. And he starts flicking this expertly. And we cut to outside and the three large satellite dishes start to move 
a red light flashing on each of their noses, responding to Bond's commands. We cut back into uh, to the office as Bond is hunched over the controls as a point-of-view shot moves from uh, behind Bond towards his hunched-over back, and suddenly Bond is hit hard from behind as Mr. Wheeze crashes into him after apparently holding his breath as he advanced. Bond hits the side of the control bank hard and is badly wounded. Wheeze babbles in again, reminding us and Bond of his brutal fighting style, smashing Bond in the side over and over on both sides, then in the stomach, doubling him over again, then brings his knee up into Bond's face, knocking him back and down to the floor. Wheeze towers over him, grinning, showing his own set of bloody teeth, at Bond now bleeding himself from a bad cut above, the, above his eye. Wheeze bears down on Bond, and we cut to uh, the control room. Isabella is at the controls, demonstrating a far less scientific approach to Bond, using a desk chair just to smash down onto the controls over and over again, uh, she steps back, appraising her work as everything is sparking and smoking and fizzing, and then uses the microphone uh, remaining on the desk to buzz Sebastian's office. And she speaks into it. James, James, are you there? James. We cut to the office as Bond is picked up from the floor and thrown bodily across the room, stumbling and then smashing into the control bank. Weeze rushes at him again, grabs him from the back of the collar, wrenching Bond back and punching him hard in the face. From the speaker on the desk comes Isabella's voice. The controls are smashed. Nothing else is getting out. But you've got to disable those dishes or the first wave of intel will be transmitted any moment. James! Bond is again picked up off the floor, dazed. His attention is on the speaker, though, and he comprehends the message. Weez throws another punch at Bond's face, but this time he ducks, the fist sailing over, and he lands a solid blow into Weez's stomach, causing him to double up and weaves. Bond then rushes to the controls and starts again fiddling frantically with the switches. Outside on the lawn, the huge dishes again start to turn and move, but not very fast. Inside the office, Bond is again wrenched from the controls and Weez continues to rain blows down on him. Bond takes a few, blocks a few, kicks and then hits Weez. He clocks him uh, very well on the chin, making Weez spin. Bond gets to the banks again, flicks more switches, almost done. Weez gets up and screams with raw hate and rushes bodily, full on at Bond. This time, Bond is ready. He waits until the last moment, then turns from the controls, spins, grabs Weez and twists, using his own momentum of the charge to throw him headfirst into the bank of equipment, uh, which then explodes, uh, uh, sparks flying, and outside, the dishes finally stop moving then lower down into a dormant position uh, and the red lights on their noses stop flashing and goes dark. In the office, the sparks from the busted machine have caught the curtains and a fire is starting to spread. Wheeze is now face down on the carpet, not moving. James turns to flee and is just leaving the room when a lone guard rushes in with a gun face to face with Bond. Both are stunned, but then the guard brings his gun up, then a shot comes out, the guard flies forward, crashing into the wall and down to the ground. Dead, Isabella stands in the doorway with a gun. She rushes to Bond and she says, The files are gone. The information's been destroyed. And Bond is like, Yes, so have the satellite controls. Let's get out of here, fast. With flames now licking from different areas in the, in the branch house, um, from different, different windows, 
Bond and Isabella rush out of the front main door into the wide open driveway and look about. Everyone is fleeing their posts and so far ignoring them, but there are no more vehicles. Bond says, The amount of munitions Fanning was storing here, this place is liable to blow any second. And Isabella, I think I have a way out. Then we cut back to inside the office when we move in on where Wheeze is still lying face down on the floor. We move in closer into his face and his eye opens. Outside the front of the house, Bond and Isabella are moving away from the building's entrance when suddenly the ground before them is churned up by gunfire. They fall back seeking cover as several ranch hands, remaining guards and some leftovers from that diner stop, unco uh, stop uncoupling the horses from the paddock uh, and they all have guns and rifles and automatic weapons. It looks like they were going to use the horses to flee, but now they're more interested in shooting Bond and Isabella. So they're racing at where they're taking cover. Bond and Isabella fire back, but their weapons now click empty after just a few shots. Isabella says to Bond, move! And she grabs a slightly confused Bond, and they rush together across the way towards the massive barn. Now an explosion shoots from a window, and several more booms rock the house. As smoke and flames shoot out and spread further, a figure sta staggers out of the smoke and onto the front of the ranch driveway next to the paddock opposite the barn. It is Weeds. He is a mess, totally bloodied and staggering, and in some fog of near-death concussion, but is still fueled by hate and rage. He has a gun, a big gun, and he scans around for Bond, seeing him just as he disappears into the barn about 50 metres up the track. Wee staggers forward and cocks his gun. The double doors of the barn are moving larger as Wee gets closer when he stops. From the darkness beyond the huge main barn doors come the sound of hooves, and then Bond, riding a magnificent stallion, bursts out and across the wide open space towards Wheeze. Wheeze stares, then grins, then staggers forward a few more steps and raises the gun. He takes very careful aim. We have a huge, wide, epic shot of Bond galloping towards Wheeze atop the horse. Wheeze squints down the barrel, his finger tightening on the trigger, and then another sound, louder, getting louder all the time, and the ground beneath Wheeze starts to shake, and he frowns downward as the loose dirt and pebbles dance about his feet. And then he looks back up as Bond on the horse coming ever closer. And then from the barn behind Bond comes a stampede of about 1,500 cows and bulls rushing out. And we have an epic wide shot now of Bond center frame on this huge horse with this even more huge herd bearing down behind him. And from the back of all of this, we see Isabella riding out on her own horse, pushing the cattle forward, screaming, yeah! Bond is overtaken now by many of the herd as they thunder around and past his galloping horse and right towards Wheeze. Wheeze doesn't even raise his gun, just stares at the oncoming Bohine tidal wave. We have his point of view as the cattle race right into camera and then a close-up reverse shot zoom up right on his face he opens his mouth wide to scream, but only a low wheeze comes out. And now we cut to a long wide shot of the whole scene. We see the barn on the far left, we see wheeze on the far right, we see Bond riding in profile now from left to right across the screen. The herd is all around him, framed from behind by the flaming ranch house. 
and the stampede reaches Wheeze, and in a shot which is exactly like Moonraker, so it's not too violent, just like in Moonraker when the, a speedboat explodes, we clearly see the ragdoll figure of what once was Wheeze be flipped up high into the air, his arms and legs already floppy, as he arcs right up and then back down to be swallowed up utterly by the hooves and horns and mass of the cows. And behind the herd now, still riding Isabella, still making ER noises, she uh, drives the herd forward and now catches up and rides alongside Bond. And she says to him, I saw Wheeze, where is he? And Bond, he lived to take the bull by the horns. Now the herd uh, crashes through the paddock and through the remaining of the buildings, um, smashing the structures to matchwood and causing all remaining guards, cowboys and locals to flee or be swamped themselves. Bond and Isabella's horses veer off, moving away now from the herd and the thundering mass, and they convene, riding together across a vast field away from the ranch house and then up the slope of a, hit a hill to the top overlooking the entire compound. And now on horseback, overlooking the, uh, the smoking ruins, they steady their horses and watch as below the ranch blazes fiercely, the stampede runs off into the endless fields beyond, and a mammoth fireball erupts from the centre of the remains of the ranch house, collapsing the roof and leaving nothing but more flames. There's a long moment, uh, Bond and Isabella then turn and look at each other, and from atop his horse, Bond straddles over, and leans in for a kiss. And Isabella moves her horse away a little bit and says, No more horseplay, Commander. And Bond, I assure you, this is one strategy I'm confident about. Uh, Bond and Isabella, steadying their mounts, now both lean in and have a long kiss when five helicopters now buzz low overhead, making Bond and Isabella duck instinctively as their hair goes crazy and the grass gets flapped by all the, the wind. And from the lead helicopter, as it flies over the branch, um, the loudspeaker blares to life, and we hear, This is the CIA! Drop your weapons and prepare to, sweat to surrender! And Bond watches, even a bit miffed, as then now one last helicopter lowers down, hovering above and just in front of Bond and Isabella on their horses, the grass bending under the rotor's wind, and then the side door of the copter slides open, revealing Felix with a mouthpiece in his hand, and his voice coming clearly from the speaker on the copter's base. And Felix says, Ahoy, Mr. Bond! And on horseback, Bond smiles tightly, wryly, and still a little bit peeved. And Felix, looking good, Bond. Sorry to interrupt your usual horsing around. And as he says this last little pun, this little pun from the horse, Bond looking up at Felix, Bond even does a Cassandra and mouths along, horsing around, like nodding, like, yes, yes, in sync, with lighter. And Isabella looks now at Bond, who now looks back at her. And Isabella says, and now? And Bond looks to me like a stalemate. And we move to one last epic wide shot as we see the helicopter hovering with lighter. And beyond that, the ranch is burning. And in the foreground on the horses, on the hilltop, Bond and Isabella lean in from their saddles, overlooking the Valley of Destruction and ignoring Lighter's attempts at cock block. They kiss passionately. And then we have the end credits. At the end of that, the end of Murder of Secrets, James Bond will return in The Spy Who Loved Me. Taglines. Secrets are his birds, 
and his birds mean death. Another one, with all secrets out, anarchy will follow. Another one in quotes, because it's what Sebastian says, the art of misdirection, Mr. Bond. And then a kind of a more um, sort of period specific tagline, Bond, exclamation mark, tricked, trapped, the stakes have never been higher, dot, 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 or the women as dangerous, three exclamation marks. Uh, so there you are. That's uh, the end of A Murder of Secrets. And James Bond will return in The Spy Who Loved Me, not to mention Jimmy's film as well. So there you go, Jeppy. <laughs> I don't even know where to start with you, young man. But my God, like, there was every single beat. There was every beat. And it was all perfect. Like It was a busy week. It was, it was a busy, epic. busy I week. The world owes you a great debt, my friend, and I really oh, hope nice. that happens one day. <laughs> but yeah, listen, man. I've got some, <laughs> I mean, I got some, I got some bullets like that I managed to write here and there. But I just, I'll see if any of this makes sense. Like you know, I just even just all your little Rogerisms, and there's so many throwaway that are just amazing. But deciding not to do the poo gag and just do that with the eyes was just delightful and perfect. And like the more hiss, if you had him hissing a bit with the eyes, <laughs> perfect. I totally fell for the Darlene, as I said. Like, I mean, Jesus, I don't know how I did, and I did, but it was really lovely. Um, I just love the hold on as well with the harvester. I mean, it's, 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 I mean, there's all the awesome stuff is on the surface here, but to go that deep and know that more would say it in that moment, which might have been improvised by him in the movie, but you were so into it, <laughs> you got to that point with it too. It's absolutely amazing. Um, yeah, I I just James, you're alive. I've always preferred it that way. Is a lovely throwaway <laughs> too, and just all the beats, man. And Wheeze, my God, he's like good enough and bloody diehard. He just wouldn't go down. Yeah. <laughs> <Jesus> <laughs> <Christ>. <laughs> that was something special, Sheps. Unbelievable. Well, you know, thank God I was. Little I was bits. First. That's all we can say. Ugh. Jesus, that's unfollowable. We'd have had to like cancel Christmas or something like if I was. <laughs> But yeah, well, um, thank you. Amazing. You know, there's little bits. It's, it's not a totally dissimilar sort of, you know, ending to Man with the Golden Gun in terms of a relatively low-key death. You know, I wanted a Yafikoto explosion and I got my sort of like, so, so I had weeds sort of get flipped up. You know what I mean by the, the, the guy in Moonraker in the boat and it's just like this long shot of his body flying right up in the air? Uh, so there you go. Yeah, so I think you could do that for a PG. And I think it would take a lot less time to watch it than it takes to listen to me, you know, read it. So it's it's a it's not an eight hour film. I think amazing, man, bloody amazing. I mean, thank you. Yeah, I don't, I can't do justice to it in the in the debrief, Shep. So I can tell you is thank you and no, no, that's that's lovely, lovely, Jimmy. And I know we're well over the time limit. Is this going to be even longer than indie? We will see, very possibly. It will be. We're at four and a half recorded hours, which is quite extraordinary, isn't it? But Not bad. Actually, no, it's not quite. It's just about four. That's pretty mad. We might break the... We have little steps. We might break the internet. We might break <laughs> yes. the tune. Well, it's yes. the 50th, and it's Bond, and it's more. Well, what do you want? <laughs> um, so, yes, yes. Like I said with the indie one, you know, there's a time for, like, you know, taking your time to step back of a straight and there's a time you get to write Roger Moore doing the Roger Moore punch and punching someone in an Irish pub. You know, 
indulgence. Cigarette thing as well. Like, see, it was Bondian. It wasn't like the pure, like copying all his other parts. He put his own flourish on it and did it with a cigarette. Yeah. So, nice. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you very much for me. Thank you for setting this because I would never have thought of doing that, and it was it was great. Sheppy, the final thing here is Shoulders of Giants will return. And when we yes. do with a formal episode, do you have it in the clip as to what that might Well, be? I have ones that I could like throw out now. I hadn't really thought about it. So it's kind of like exciting in that we don't we have things, speaking of the Gowan future stuff that we can we can talk about and reveal to the world at a certain point. In terms of future things, yes, okay, Jimmy, why not? I'm gonna set the Basically, the, the next special, which technically will be episode 51, uh, but the, the special, yes, Jimmy, all right, you dreamt it. It's And I'll tell you something else. When you first set Shoulders of Giants, about three films popped into my mind that I wanted to do, maybe four. Um, one of those was Flash Gordon, and I've done that. Another one was Star Wars, and, I, you know, and you know, when I set that, um, there are two more from the four that I haven't yet set. So I feel now is probably the time. Jimmy, I want a sequel to Crawl, And oh. you can take that to the bank. <laughs> I have to revisit my childhood trauma of the eyeball part. Yes, 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 my God. Yes. yes. <laughs> uh, again, most of my pleasure comes from your forced rewatch. It's absolutely wonderful. <laughs> I can't wait to speak to you about it. So in the meantime, Jimmy... Thank you again, uh, for the, you and thank you, listener, for this. I got nothing to thank me about. That was that was just a treat. Um, so, look, yeah, how do we sign off a Roger? Well, how do you sign off a good Roger? That's what I want to know. <laughs> I mean, you could talk and talk. It makes me want to Roger more. Oh God! <laughs> That's I don't know. That, that could work. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, alt, yeah, alt. I don't know, as long as we keep the British end up. ba da ba ba da ba ba Nobody does. Boink. Bella ba da ba ba da ba ba Makes me feel sad. Boink. Otherwise, ba da ba ba da ba ba Tried to hide